What's going on? It's Mark Malusa's Maggie Gray, the Moose and Maggie Show. We understand if you can't listen to all four hours of the show, although we'd recommend it. But here's a podcast for you with the highlights of all the best from the Moose and Maggie Show, CBS Sports Radio, Saturday morning, 6 to 10 a.m. Eastern. Ah, yes. Happy Saturday morning to one and all. It is the Moose and Maggie Show. Four hours of sports talk with you right here on CBS Sports Radio as we come to you live from the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios. O'Reilly Auto Parts, better parts, better prices every single day. 855-212-4CBS, 855-212-4227. Number to call to get involved. Hit us up on Twitter at Mark Malusis, at Maggie Gray, at Moose and Maggie. Three ways you can go about doing that. And Good morning, Maggie. How are you? Moose, good morning. I was debating whether or not I was going to tell our producer, Anthony, and on the board today is Dennis, and two of the biggest WWE fans that I have met in my life, and I was debating whether or not I was actually going to tell them this story, but I went to the 30 for 30 premiere of the Ric Flair documentary, and I know that these guys are really excited about this, as they should be. It's really good. I think any WWE fan, and even if you're not a wrestling fan, obviously Ric Flair wrestled in NWA for a long time. Uh, I know that, but it's really good. WCW. WCW. I forgot to tell you, we're having Rory next week, the director. Oh, Rory Carp? Okay, great, because he did a fantastic job. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to tell these guys because, you know, I didn't have a plus one. Gotcha. I couldn't bring anybody to the premiere. I had to go ride this one solo. And when I got there, the PR people from the WWE said, Maggie, we want to introduce you to somebody. They bring me right over Triple H. Got to have one-on-one conversation. Paul Levesque and me hanging out. We're talking. I'm looking at Anthony's face right now. He hates me so much for this. I didn't even know. I can't see Dennis. I'm sure he's probably just seething. And I wasn't sure if I was going to tell everyone. I know you guys are pissed. I didn't have a plus one. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I also got to see my friend Mick Foley. Called me out from the red carpet. Hey, Maggie. I know. What Look about your that. friend Stephanie McMahon? I she know was you were not very there. Close, She's so. not there. I know. I was. I was. I was bummed. Stephanie was not there. But anyway, sorry guys. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be rubbing it in. Just that I was talking to Triple H for for a while. Just one on one. Just me and him. Great. Yeah. Just talking. You know, talking shop really. Just friends, I think, at this point. Acquaintances, but, but a little bit more. You know, just like friendly nice. acquaintances. Yeah. All right. First name basis. First name. Maggie, thanks a lot. Shook my hand twice. Nice. Cool. I just want to get that one out of the way right in the 6 a.m. Eastern now. That's great. Yeah. Fantastic. You <laughs> it, were it was a good week. <laughs> good. I'm glad. But anyway, that plays into uh, one of our guests today. Of course, Jim Ross, legendary announcer. He has a new book out called Slobberknocker, My Life in Wrestling. We're going to talk to him in uh, about 8.40 a.m. Eastern time. Nice. Yeah. There you go, Maggie. I'll make sure to tell him the story. Friends, friends with Triple H. Good. Who right. else did you meet this week? Um, Sean Avery. Nice. <laughs> that one didn't go as good as that one didn't go as well as uh, you can check my Twitter feed. That one did not go as well as right. Triple H. Yeah. Right. Jay Avery not happy. Uh, not happy with it, where his life is, or um, not happy with. You know, I don't know if he's happy a, a, as a person. Maybe. Uh, it seems like he's doing what he wants to do, acting, stuff like that. He's acting? He's, where, where is he acting? You know, he was in Patriot's Day. Um, really? I saw that movie. I didn't even, <laughs> where was he in that movie? I don't know. I'm going to have to check his IMDb page. We actually didn't talk about that. He has a new book out, too. I might as well promote it for him. It's called Ice Capades. It's actually called something different in Canada, which is funny. But um, it's called Ice Capades, and he writes a lot about his life off the ice, almost as much as he writes about it on the ice. Right. And it's a lot about women. A lot about partying, 
And, you know, I said, you know, women are like objectified in this book. Is, you know, is any of this sort of misogynist? And then he kind of gave me this response that I thought was actually kind of fair. He said, listen, sports is a somewhat misogynistic place. And that's how he sees it. And I, I don't know if anyone could really argue with that. And so not exactly I, the best of guys or the best of teammates. Well, yeah, but you know, that that's totally aside, right? I was just asking about the things that he was writing in his book right. that he was that he was pretty honest about. And then I posted it on Twitter just with his quote, no comment, no opinion, just this is what he said. You can watch it here. He got really upset about it. So I don't know what to tell you. So met Sean Avery this week. Did not go as well I, as Triple H. I would not be offended if Sean Avery getting <laughs> upset with you. I mean, I'm just the latest person. <laughs> it was funny though because he accused me of doing it to try to get followers, and I was like, "Wait a minute, yeah, wait." I, a minute. I just don't think Avery's a good guy, but, to be honest with you. It's like, you no, know, read his book. He's clearly not. He tells you he's well, not. Yeah, but, I agree with you. But the thing is, it's I don't funny. need to read the book. I mean, I know the life story, <laughs> yeah, right. so I don't think he's a good guy. Yeah, you got the Cliff's notes. But, I have no interest in reading his book. But the funny thing is, is that he accused me of like doing this to be salacious to try to get followers, like like Twitter followers. And I wanted to be like, man, if I really wanted to get into a Twitter beef with an athlete or celebrity, yeah. I might pick somebody, maybe that somebody a little cares bit about? bigger than Shawnee. Yeah, I would agree with that. <laughs> I would agree. Well, listen, I, I picked Triple H. <laughs> yes, I think, and you know, uh, yeah, I mean, Avery, uh, Avery's a different guy. So he is. A different I mean, guy. he but went. Listen, he wrote the book. He came in. I appreciated the interview, even if obviously he didn't like it. Here's my thing, right? This is what I get so upset about. And we're going to talk a lot about sports right now. But just one thing I want to get off my chest. And I think this applies to life in general. If you have a problem with somebody, right? If you're sitting across from them and say you don't like uh, something that they said or you feel like they were trying to insinuate something or you felt like you were trying to get something like, say it in the moment. Don't then later go do some passive-aggressive Twitter stuff, you know? Or don't then later, if you're a famous person, have your publicist call and say they didn't appreciate this question. Like, man up, you know? Be a be a human being and just say to the person, hey, I really didn't appreciate that. We could talk about it. Yeah, I would agree with that. Don't, don't, don't go Twitter. Don't get your Twitter muscles, you know? Right. Like, uh, and then later feel like you have to come after somebody. I just feel like that's pretty much the lamest thing you can possibly do. I would agree with that. You know? I would agree. So there you go. Well, you had the highs and the lows all week long. So there you go. How how was your week? Uh, Our week has been good. I mean, the same. I mean, honestly, it's been, uh, it's like Groundhog Day. But I mean, it's been, no, it's good. No, I can't complain. Groundhog Day in a good way. Yes, yes. Um, But um, got a lot of things to get into, certainly. Um, And uh, baseball kind of leads the way. Uh, in terms of uh, the World Series, which the Astros leading the Dodgers two games to one uh, following their victory, 5-3 victory last night, which Peacock was fantastic yeah. out of the bullpen for A.J. Hinch. And, uh, you know, Dave Roberts might live to regret the, the game two decision to take out um, uh, his starter, Rich Hill, after just four innings of work and the way that that did not work out late. And the Astros came back on them. And now this Houston team has this series exactly where they want it, leading two games to one. Going into a game four start tonight, Alex Wood on the mound, uh, being opposed by Charlie Morton for the Houston Astros. Uh, you look at the adjustment that Hinch has made, where he trusts his starters more so coming out of the bullpen than he does his designated relievers. And this Astros lineup, which was pretty quiet during the American League Championship Series and quiet during game one of the World Series, uh, woke up in game two and woke up once again last night as uh, we've got ourselves a fun World Series. I mean, Game 2 was fantastic. Game 3 was entertaining last night. The crowds have been great out in Los Angeles and Houston, respectively. Uh, it's good for the sport of Major League Baseball. You've got a negative headline coming out of last night, which will get to the Gurriel uh, gesture uh, toward Hugh Darvish. Um, but certainly, 
Um, it was uh, overall for Major League Baseball, it's been a, a good World Series for the star. Yeah, and I, I hope that this Guriel thing doesn't put a cloud over it because what he said was obviously incredibly stupid, incredibly offensive. And we're going to get into that, but this has been a great World Series, and you don't want it to be overshadowed by one knucklehead, you know, just completely out-of-bounds comments. But you mentioned how the Houston Astros have come alive. Games two and three moves, they've combined for 26 hits, where the Dodgers have combined for just nine. You're right, they have found this sort of, or refound what was so successful for them in the regular season, which was just having the most dangerous uh, lineup in the major leagues. You know, you had the... Uh, four different hitters, you know, every ha every Astro, rather, getting on base last night, four RBI, four different hitters, you know, the way, as you mentioned, that Hinch has used his pitchers. And now, I mean, if you are looking at the Dodgers, I mean, I know that their bullpen was one of the best in baseball, and I know that that's a huge strength for them. But look at what's happened over the last two games. I mean, you have really taxed a lot of those guys. Except for Maeda, I think everyone would be available tonight. But still, you've had to call on them so much. And I realize you do have, I mean, you have Kershaw, right, who's going to be there for game five. It's just, what do you do about tonight's game? And, you know, what happens if Alex Wood has to get pulled as soon as early as you Darvish had to? You know, then I feel like advantage goes so much to the Astros that now you're just really looking up at this massive mountain you have to climb, even if you do have Kershaw going game five. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, if you're down three games to one, I mean, all the, uh, uh, you take the, I hands. mean, well, right. I mean, for the Astros, uh, you'd like where you were sitting and for the Dodgers, you'd put the most pressure on it, uh, with, uh, Kershaw going there in the fifth game to deliver Los Angeles, to deliver the series back to Los Angeles, uh, for a game six and see if you can rally from three games to one down, which would be a, a monumental hill to, uh, to climb. That's why if I were Roberts, I'd really think about uh, rolling Kershaw back on three days rest to make sure that I have him for a game seven. He is the best pitcher in the sport. You don't want to hear about rest. Uh, you're three victories away from a World Series championship. Uh, he's pitched on short rest before. Uh, I don't need him to go seven or eight innings, but if he can give me six solid innings, I mean, just look at how ineffective the starters have been well, based on managerial decision game two, I mean, Hill was very, very good. I yeah. shouldn't say he wasn't effective. I mean, they just, uh, the analytics of the world drove you crazy in game two with their decision to take Hill out of the game. And then last night, you Darvish was not particularly good at all. No, it wasn't. And, you know, which is a shame because obviously you make that big trade late in the season yeah. for you Darvish. Then you look and you think, all right, he knows this lineup better than anyone because he's been in the division against this team for the last few years, and maybe he should have some kind of advantage here. But, no, I mean, Astros are rolling right now. And, you know, I I go different ways about momentum in baseball just because it's such a fluky sport in a lot of ways. And you don't want to start, you know, saying, oh, the crowd and the home crowd and the roof closed and this and that. But it really does feel like that, doesn't it? And it feels like when guys start hitting, it just does get contagious. I know there's no – you can't quantify that in any kind of analytical way. But it does feel like the Astros are really have the advantage. Charlie Morton's been awesome. So they have to feel great about that. And they've really put the pressure back on the Dodgers. I mean, I don't know, Moose, if you were Dave Roberts, I mean, you think you would have started Kershaw not tonight? I'd roll Kershaw back on game four. In game four. Yeah, I would not, he would not be coming out of the bullpen. Right. I mean, I would roll Kershaw back in, in game four tonight um, and make sure that I have him for three starts here. Um, I would because the bullpen is extremely taxed right now. And I would go down. If I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down with my best. I'm yeah. not going to go down with Alex Wood. I know what Wood did in the regular season. That's great. 
uh, but there's no comparison between the starters that Wood and Kershaw is. Now, you're going to say, well, Kershaw's going to have to win regardless. But if I start him tonight, then I can conceivably have him for two more starts, um, you know, one more start after tonight, but two more starts if this series should go seven games. If I start him in game five, then conceivably speaking, I would have him coming out of the bullpen in the game seven. You know, I'm wondering, though. If the series gets to seven If the seven series games. gets to seven, I'm wondering if maybe – and I don't know if this is going to thought into the thought process at all, but you know, Kershaw's back was an issue this year. It has been, and it seems like he's completely healthy, but I wonder if behind the scenes, there's something going on where they're like, listen, he really does need as much rest as possible to be as effective as he can be. Well, if I'm going on the idea that he's healthy and that's, that's the assumption I'm going on right now. I mean, he was throwing the ball 95, 96 (laughs) miles an hour the other night. So, I mean, his back can't be all that hurt, but I mean, if, then that takes it out of the equation. If he needs all the rest just to get himself ready for a start every, you know, uh, a normal rest, then then that takes out. If I go on the idea that he's healthy and that he's over the back injury, then he's starting game four tonight for me. If I were Dave Roberts and the Los Angeles Dodgers, I'm not starting Alex Wood. So we talked Because little, if I have a matchup, yeah. if I have a matchup of Kershaw, Charlie Morton, even with Kershaw on sh- a short rest, I am delivering you Los Angeles. I'm getting this series. I don't know what happens in game five. I could pitch, I could pitch Alex Wood in game five. I'd have Rich Hill for a game six. And then conceivably speaking, I would have uh, Kershaw for a seventh game. I don't have to see you Darvish again in this series. I don't trust him. I certainly would not trust him in a seventh and deciding game in this series to make that start. That's the way that I would handle it. Because if Kershaw wins tonight in game four... And he doesn't have to go seven or eight innings tonight. He delivers me Los Angeles. I have him ready for his seventh game. And I believe I have a decided pitching advantage tonight with Kershaw over Charlie Moore. And I would think my bats do come alive. I don't necessarily trust Alex Wood down two games to one to start a pivotal game for tonight. I guess maybe the other side of it would be you feel like maybe you can steal one with Alex Wood, but even if you don't, then if you are absolute, if you're down three one, then don't you want your absolute best guy, the but the person you trust the most, to try to stave off elimination? And then in Game Seven, maybe then you're bringing Kershaw out of the bullpen if you need him. Almost like I feel like that's what they did with Madison Bumgarner, the San Francisco Giants. They right? did, they, and, and like- he brought him out of the bullpen in a, in the seventh game, and that's fine. But my bullpen's my strength. I mean, my, my bullpen, conceivably speaking, is not my weakness. I don't have to flip the script where I'm using starters coming out of the bullpen like A.J. Hinch is doing if I'm Dave Roberts. I mean, he got a little too cute in game two. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, I, you know, if I'm down three games to one, I'll tell you, Maggie, the Dodgers aren't coming back from 3-1 down on the Astros. If the Astros win tonight, they're going to win the World Series. I mean, honestly, they are. Um, I, I don't see Houston – um, losing three straight games the way that they're playing right now against the Los Angeles Dodgers. That's why I would cut it off at the knees tonight with Kershaw. And if I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down with my best. What do you guys think? Would you have Kershaw going tonight? I know we're on on the West Coast. Lots of Dodger fans, I'm sure, are listening to the sound of our voices yeah. tonight. Today, if you, if it was up to you, if you're the man, if you're Dave Roberts, what are you doing? Would you rather have Kershaw going tonight? Would you save him for game five? Also, we should get into... Uh, Yuli Gurriel's uh, comment and gesture that he made in the dugout after his home run off of you, Darvish. Yeah, we'll get into that next. Uh, Melusis and Gray with you. It is the Moose and Mackey show each and every Saturday morning here on CBS Sports Radio. And 
Let's also not forget that Maggie chatted with Triple H I did. this week. I talked to Triple H this week. I was introduced to Triple H. We shook hands and we spoke. And he said her name. He did. He said Maggie Gray. It was a Gray. good week for Maggie Gray. Yeah. I said, I interviewed your wife. He said, I know. Moose and Maggie, Great CBS job. Sports Radio. <laughs> this is the Moose and Maggie Show on CBS Sports Radio. All right, 855-212-4CBS, 855-212-4227. That's your number to call to get involved. It is the Moose and Maggie Show Saturday mornings here on CBS Sports Radio. And coming out of the victory last night, um, and it's been a good series so far, was uh, the news or the gesture by Yuli Gurriel for the Houston Astros after he home run, homered off of Hugh Darvish. And... Um, I would say the, you know, the racist gesture that he made in the dugout um, and what he said as well um, in the dugout to his teammates uh, that if you read lips, you can pick up on um, after he hit the home run last night that made the game one nothing in the bottom half of the second inning. And now the question is, does Gurriel get suspended uh, for game four tonight of the World Series? Reportedly, as you've heard Peter report this morning, uh, Rob Manfred, the MLB commissioner, wants to chat with Yuli Gurriel and uh, before the game tonight or at some point today uh, before game four down in Houston. Uh, the Major League Baseball asked the Astros to make Gurriel available for the medium, media and send him to the podium last night. They did not. Um, he stayed in the locker room. Uh, the Astros declined that. Uh, he did talk to reporters for five minutes, though. He did through an interpreter, and he apologized. But to me, the apology really falls on deaf ears. I mean, he basically says, I did not mean to be offensive at any point. I've always had a lot of respect um, for Japanese people. I've never had anything against Darvish. For me, he's always been one of the best pitchers. I've never had any luck against him. If I offended him, I apologize. It was not my intention. And I hate the. I hate this. This is my least favorite type of apology, right? I'm sorry if I offended anyone. No, just be sorry that you said something offensive, right? right. Be sorry that you did it. Yeah. Don't be sorry about how it was interpreted. Be sorry that you said it. And the thing about Guriel is that he really doesn't have a leg to stand on here because he can't claim ignorance or anything like that because he played in Japan. He, yeah, I don't think he's claiming ignorance. He knows that this was an offensive thing to say. You know, he can't just be like, I, I never had any success against against Japanese pitchers, so somehow this uh, this empowers me to say something derogatory or use, you know, make a gesture that's derogatory, it's a complete and utter embarrassment. And, you know, there's already been a precedent here because earlier this season when Kevin Pillar and Matt, and Matt Joyce both were caught saying homophobic slurs, they right. were both suspended for a game. So it should not matter whether it's the World Series or whether it's a game in the middle of July or August. They should... Everyone, the rules should apply to everyone evenly. So I think Yuli Gurriel has to be suspended for a game. Here's my one thing, though, is about the timing. What does the Players Association do here? Because would they appeal it? And if so, does that appeal process have to then go to, you know, does that take time? Does the commissioner have to hear an appeal? Meanwhile, we're talking about, like, hours here. We're not, you know, we don't have weeks or days really to spare. So I'm not sure what Rob Manfred can actually do and if Yuli Gurriel is should be granted an appeal process no matter what or how offensive the thing he has said is. But I think that there's no doubt about it that Rob Manfred should absolutely hand down a one-game suspension for him. I mean, listen, you can't just let these kinds of things go. You know, words matter. We're going to talk about this later, I'm sure, when we talk about Bob McNair and the Houston Texans. I mean, you have to be 
aware. And what Guriel did was have absolutely no regard. He knew he was saying something offensive. He needs to be punished for it. Now, if the cameras don't shoot him, you have no idea that goes on. I know, but if the cameras don't pick up the Kevin Pillar, Matt Joyce homophobic slurs, you no, have no, no idea. I, I right? get it. I, I understand. I mean, I don't think he's going to get suspended by Major League Baseball. I, I don't. I'm not. I'm not telling you that what he did was right. It's wrong. You Darvish uh, took to Twitter last night and said the gesture was disrespectful, uh, but also went on to explain that no one is perfect. Uh, he added, uh, "We had to. Uh, what uh, he had done today isn't right, but I believe we should put our effort into learning." rather than to excuse him. If we can take something from this, that is a giant step for mankind. Since we are living in such a wonderful world, let's stay positive and move forward instead of focusing on anger. I mean, I think that is, I think that's well classy. said by Darvish and classy and, and taking Guriel off of the, the hot seat from, from his perspective. And what Guriel did, I mean, wasn't right. It certainly wasn't. And I'm not, uh, I'm not going to, to say that it's a okay or, that he does not deserve to be reprimanded. I don't think he'll be suspended by Major League Baseball, though. Why not? I don't. Um, I just I, I could see something in the regular. I don't think they're going to suspend him for Game Four of the World Series. I just don't know what the difference is. I mean, I knew. I well, there it. is a tangible difference between the regular season and the playoffs. No, I mean, but not a difference between saying something that is uh, that is offensive to somebody and having a player be suspended. Well, he didn't say, for. He didn't say it specifically to Darvish. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't go and address you, Darvish. He didn't walk out to the mound. You, Darvish, had yeah, no but idea. Moose, I mean. But no, you. Well, no, no. There. But I mean, he did. You can't say that he said it right at you, Darvish. He didn't. I know, but, I mean, we, he, was, but he, was, he acknowledged that he was doing the the act and saying it towards Darvish. No, no, I, I get it, but he did not. It's not like okay, if I if I say something to Dennis across the way, you're not in the room, and you can't say, well, I'm addressing you. I'm not addressing you. I'm I'm I might be talking about you, but I'm not addressing you. He was not. He didn't say something specifically to the face of Hugh Darvish. He didn't do that. He he was making fun. He was mocking. He said a, he had a racist gesture. He said something in Spanish that said what Japanese or Chinese or whatever it was. Uh, what was it? Chinto, I, I think it was, or something it's of that nature. It's really offensive to yeah. people in Japan. Yeah, and, I mean, and he I, knows this. There's to, no to question about Asian it. Heritage. I'm not. I'm not defending what he did. Right. I don't think he's going to be suspended by Major League Baseball for Game Four of the World Series. I just though. don't think there's a lot of difference if he had went out to the mound and been like in your face as opposed to being in the dugout. Oh, there is. Just... I, there is a difference. I mean, I, I see that as there very is, little. I mean, you're there, on the field of play. He just did it. He does the gesture and says it. He got caught in the dugout. I mean, I don't think that he – sorry, I'll say this. I don't think he needs to be up in you Darvish's face doing this or gesturing. I'm not saying that he need, needs in – to, In order to trigger a suspension. Like, no, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying – and I didn't say that either. I just said that there is a tangible difference. If I say someone something to someone's face, it's different than if I say something behind someone's back. There is – there is a difference to that. I mean, that that but is here, but, two but, but, totally different well, things. But is it behind the back? I mean, it's not like he's back in the clubhouse saying it to a guy next to him in a locker. Like Maggie, he did if the it camera the goes dugout. to him 30 seconds later, 10 seconds later, you have no idea that it went down. Okay, but that doesn't matter there now because we know of, it did go no, down. No, but there, if you think – but here's the other thing. If you think that – if you think Guriel, and I know you don't, but I mean – if you think that guys don't say things about one another in that dugout that we have no idea over the course of a long MLB regular season, you'd be suspending guys left and right. I know, and he got caught, so he should be suspended. Yeah, I don't think he's going to be suspended for Game 4 of the World Series. I'll tell you, I'll be stunned. 
I'd be stunned if he gets suspended tonight for Game Four of the World okay, Series. Okay, you don't think he will be suspended? Do I don't. you think he should be? Yeah, I mean, I think he's, and I think he could. I think he's going to get fined. I think he could cost some regular season games next year. I don't think he'll get suspended for to Game Four tonight. I think if you're Manfred, you want to set. You've already set this precedent. You have to feel like you have to look like you're applying it evenly. You got to suspend him. This is the Moose and Maggie Show on CBS Sports Radio. All right, sign up to be an O-Rewards member today. Start earning instantly. O-Rewards members earn $5 back for every 150 points you earn. It's fast, easy, free only at O'Reilly Auto Parts. See store for details. O'Reilly Auto Parts, better parts, better prices every single day. 855-212-4CBS, 855-212-4227. Number to call. Let's head down to Virginia. It's TJ. It's CBS Sports Radio. What's up, TJ? Hey, guys. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And, um... Just wanted to say uh, I'm kind of with Maggie on this one. I know Moose, you're also saying that he probably deserves to be suspended but won't be. But uh, I'm 100% with Maggie on this one. To not suspend him right away set the ugly precedent. Uh, it's got to be swift. I also think Kiko Alonso should have been ejected right away too. There's times when you got to make swift action. Also, slightly off topic. Wait, who uh, should have been, who should have been ejected said, as well? Kiko Alonso of the Dolphins. draft yeah. pick. Hopefully I can get some dap for that because I was mocked a little bit by y'all for that. For what? For Chris Tapp's Porzingis two years ago. No, I didn't. I didn't mock you out for Porzingis's pick. No, it's all good. I'm not. My feeling. I, I love you guys, but uh, a little bit. I was made fun of for saying he was the great pick. Y'all oh, were saying he I was. I mean, the they, they had no other choice. I mean, at that point in time, I mean, he was the the fourth player. What was perceived to be at that time a three player draft. No, I know, but, but y'all you were saying he, he wasn't a good pick. He was a reach, and I was just trying to mm, say I, that he was an amazing player even back then. Yeah, I mean, TJ, I, I, it wasn't me. I did a show on the fan right after the draft with Joe Beningo, who uh, mocked the pick, um, and, and I didn't. I said give him a chance. So uh, I don't know exactly where you're coming from, but, I mean, you're going back three years now. Uh, good to hear from you again. Uh, number two is – uh, no, Kiko Alonso should not. Uh, second point was off base. Kiko Alonso should not have been ejected from that game uh, with the hit on Flacco. I'm not telling you that uh, it was a correct hit or or anything, but at some point, if you're, what do you want Alonso to do? Go uh, do matrix, uh, do a matrix move in midair. Uh, once he commits to to making a hit, um, and Flacco decides to slide late, uh, there's really you're in you're in a prone position as a defensive player. The, the hit was nasty, and he gave Flacco a concussion and took him out of the game, Maggie. But I think that's where people start to lose their marbles a little bit, um, where we, we start to judge intent, and you look at the phys- – everyone wants to be bigger, faster, stronger in today's day and age of the National Football League. Uh, once a guy commits and is going full speed and um, commits to making a tackle um, and the quarterback decides to slide – uh, at the last second, there's nothing as a defensive player that you're going to be able to do uh, if you're Alonzo. There really isn't. Honestly, I, I thought people on Thursday night lost their for their ever-loving mind on that hit. I really did. To where I saw I saw people saying that he should be thrown out of the league. I mean, are we serious what? here? Uh, well, you can't go to the extremes. I mean, listen, people are. People did. Maybe people's vision honestly uh, a little bit off there. But no, I mean, listen, you can't eject Kiko Alonzo for that. I agree with you there because. Listen, you have to also look, and I, I feel terrible for what happened to Flacco. He was clearly dazed. I mean, when he puts his finger up in the air after his helmet gets knocked off, I mean, that is a chilling moment, right? Yeah. And you feel awful for him. He got stitches in his ear, the lacerated ear. But he was going for the first down. 
I mean, Flacco didn't give himself up before the first down. He was trying to get there to that first down, and Alonzo was trying to stop him. They're down, what, 13 nothing at that right. point, about to get the doors blown off of them. And so I understand. I think Joe Flacco slid late. I don't think Alonzo had any intent, but, uh, you know, I, I don't think he should have been ejected. The 15-yard penalty was enough. I don't think he should be suspended. In terms of the Porzingis thing, I mean, I was at that draft. He got booed to high heaven. Yeah, he I did. mean, it was a rain of boos that came down from every single Knicks fan. I don't remember killing the pick because I remember interviewing Porzingis. Uh, he came around before the draft to Sports Illustrated, and we sat down with him and said, would you like to be, you know, what if the Knicks take you? And he was like, I, I would love it if the Knicks took me. I think this would be great. Think about it. A lot of people have not been saying that about the New York Knicks in the last couple of years. And he was someone who was like, I would absolutely love it if the Knicks took me. We know how much of a mellow fan he was from being a younger teenager or what have you. And so I don't I don't think I mocked the pick. I I, I certainly don't remember ever feeling like this was a yeah, bad I mean, pick. I mean, it's going back east. No, no. My bad one where I really have to own up to this is I remember sitting here on a Saturday morning saying I thought Zeke Elliott was a reach. That one I will own. I'm sorry about that. I was 100% wrong. He was not a reach. Let's head down out to Rhode Island. It's Orlando. What's going on, Orlando? How you doing? I was just calling. Um, good morning, honey. Good morning. Um, I was calling. I agree with Maggie. I think he should be suspended. Uh, um, I love the game of baseball, and I just the game's so diverse now, and it has a, a great, rich history. And I think they should set an example and just suspend them. It doesn't matter if it's a regular season or how important the game is. Yeah, I mean, I I, I never said I and and let me just clarify. I never said that he should not be suspended. I just don't think he will be suspended tonight for Game Four of the World Series. You know, I actually have to make an adjustment here. I, Matt Joyce and Kevin Pillar were both given two game suspensions, and then you go back to Unel Escobar a few years back was given a three game suspension. These were all for homophobic slurs, but the 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 precedent is there. It is, you know, and and I know that. Uh, at least for Escobar, that was actually not Rob Manfred, who was the commissioner then. But it doesn't matter. The, the precedent is there. If he if they don't do this, what message does it send? No, that no. Just, I, just because the game has more not, stakes means I, that listen, it's Listen, okay. I did not defend Guriel. What he did was, was disgusting. I mean, there is no place for it, and nobody should be uh, mocked with uh, racially insensitive gestures. I mean, that, that, that is, that's, that's deplorable behavior. If you're asking me if I think he's playing tonight in Game Four of the World Series, I would tell you I think he is. Now I could be, and and listen, if he gets suspended, uh, I give Major League Baseball, I give Rob Manfred a whole hell of a lot of credit. I don't think they'll suspend him tonight for some reason. I just don't. Let's head out to Manhattan. It's Bob. You're up next on CBS Sports Radio. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Thank you, um, Maggie. I think you're gonna be mad at me, and I disagree. I think there's a witch hunt going on for anybody. You want to throw out the term racist. I understand that you, you maybe give him, maybe uh, fine him, but Gurriel's Cuban. He might not understand the culture. You have no idea his personality. He played in Japan no, in no, 2014. No, Bob, he said he knew he, oh, it I, was I, offensive I, to people I, of Asian I, heritage, and he still said I it. I understand he played in, in Japan. I get that. But I, I'm saying if, if people, like, if you want to message, fine him. He, you have no idea if he was messing around, like, and, and it, it was kind of behind the scenes event. What is this going to lead to? No cameras in the dugout. You can't follow the players. They're just messing around with each other. No, how about you just don't say things that are racist? I mean, is it that much to ask? He knows. Guriel knows this is offensive. You have no idea the context they were doing it. There's like a huge witch hunt going on, and it's just 
to me, it's it's overwhelming. Well, well, I don't see this, I don't I don't see this one hunt. as like, I don't think this one is the blame it on the PC culture type thing. Right? This is Guriel knowing that saying this is offensive to people of Asian heritage, being fully aware of that and doing it anyways. I don't know what behind the scenes you guys are talking about. It's the dugout of the World Series in 2017. How many cameras do you think are on the dugout? I mean, look at the sidelines of an NFL game. How many cameras do you think are there? Guys know they're being watched at all times, and if they don't get that by now, then they are just stupid because they know that cameras are everywhere when you're on the field of play. This is not him as an aside to a guy in the clubhouse. He's in full view in the dugout. He got caught. He apologized, but he knew it was offensive and did it anyway. And that's where I feel like you can't be an apologist for your Yuli Gurriel right now. Uh, let's head out to Texas. It's Ashton. What's going on, Ashton? Hey, guys. Uh, uh, First-time caller. Love the show. Welcome aboard, mm-hmm. buddy. Uh, I think he should be suspended. Uh, like Maggie said, he kind of had a, a bad apology. I, I didn't like it either. Said he didn't mean to offend anyone. Well, obviously he didn't. He'd be a racist if he meant to offend them. But he made a stupid joke. He should just own up to it and not appeal it if he gets suspended. And to the caller's last point, where the last caller's point, where he may have not known he was being filmed in the dugout, whatever. He just hit a home run in the World Series, like you said. He knows he's on camera. Yeah, not the entire time, though. He doesn't know the entire time he's on camera. That's not true. I mean, he I might guess, have to. I I, you so, have to I mean, assume that you are going point. to be on camera. Not, you the, are, not the entire time you're sitting but in you the also, dugout. But you, you also know you don't get to choose when you're on camera when you're no, not. No, you don't. But, I mean, to, to, to go with the assumption that there's going to be a camera focused on you the entire time you're sitting in the dugout after you hit a home run, I mean, that's an that's invalid assumption. That's not true. I don't know. I don't know about how it, not to assume that you, there's a camera fixated on you like they're never going right, to go back to the game. Right after the home run. After the next play. batter, why would I care what you're, what Gurriel's doing in the dugout? Well, I mean, if you watch, you watch a ton of baseball, I you know they go back to yeah, it. They don't, but, I mean, they really don't. They grab the moment, then they move on. I mean, they, they don't, they're not going back an inning later. They're not going back in two outs later. They're not going back an out later. No, they might because they might be capturing footage from the dugout when they go to break. They re-roll things usually in, guys high-fiving. I mean, usually they re-roll the home run. It depends who's directing the, the broadcast yeah, at I that mean, point. But if you, I, mean, I mean, if you've watched Fox this postseason, TBS, usually they're if they're scoring plays in a half inning, they're replaying the home run, the initial reaction on the field. Maybe when a guy's walking in the dugout, they're not rolling back video when a guy's sitting on the bench in the dugout. I they're, don't know. They did when Pui got out at second, and they kept replaying standing. the tag, and then he was sitting in the dugout alone with nobody by him, and they kept going back so you could just see him sitting there yeah, stewing. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I didn't, not after not after the half inning, though. Well, it doesn't. I don't think it matters. I mean, I, if you're in the dugout, I feel like you're quote unquote. This is fair game, if you will. To I'm be, not saying to it's not fair game. Time. I just don't think I you just assume don't it, do it. You just don't assume as a play. I agree with you. You just don't assume you, the camera's not going to be on you the entire time you're sitting there. Uh, let's head out to uh, the Bay Area. It's Andrea. What's going on, Andrea? Hi. How are you? How you doing, Andrea? Good. Yeah, it's been an exciting World Series so far. It has That's been. True. Yeah, yeah, it's been great baseball. So uh, to shed some light um, on the uh, uh, Guriel um, situation with you, Darvish, basically um, Guriel is June 9th, 1984. Geminis can be a little superficial, a little unemotional, immature at times. You, Darvish, is a Leo, August 16, 86. Clearly he took the high road, uh, you know, saying we all are here to learn and no one's perfect. Um, so, you know, 
it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And um, a couple of other things about the World Series. Kershaw, check this out. I don't know if you knew this. Um, he's born March 19, 1988. Steph Curry is born March 14, 1988. And um, Kershaw is a powerhouse. Pluto conjunct Mars. He is just ready to accomplish goals and more courageous, willful, like an arrow to his target. So, you know, whenever he pitches... I, you know that's very powerful for the Dodgers. So load up on Kershaw. Yeah, I yeah, I mean even if you bump him up a you know a day or so, I think he'd rise to the occasion. I wanted to mention like, that. Should I go mortgage on it, Andrea? <laughs> what was that? Mortgage. Have should a kid's I go mortgage fund. payment on yeah. it? My well, life savings the on the next thing, you know, Kershaw start. This is basically a once in a lifetime transit. Mars is a crucial planet for an athlete. It rules energy. I'm all ears. Assertion and aggression. And Pluto is the slowest moving planet, moves a couple of degrees a year. So this happens once every 248 years. So it's very rare. And Steph Curry had this last year, Moose, when the um, Warriors won. So I wish I knew that then. <laughs> right. So that said, um, he's more you know decisive, determined, persistent. This is definitely... I mean, he even looked different on the mound. I mean, I know it was the World Series, but he looked super focused. Yeah, he and, did. I mean, so basically, I mean, honestly, we right. close out hour number one, put it all on Kershaw next Call start. Call your guy. Honestly, like, <laughs> uh, what would she say, like an arrow to the heart? Yeah, he also said this is a once-in-a-lifetime. This is it. I mean, honestly, that's a, that's a, that's a money-making opportunity <laughs> right there. You couldn't – I wouldn't bet on baseball if I had the answers well, after to the Andrea, test. What Andrea said, load up. Moose and Maggie, CBS Sports Radio. This is the Moose and Maggie Show on CBS Sports Radio. Ah, yes, rolling right along here on this Saturday morning. One hour down, three to play with. We're coming to you live from the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios. O'Reilly Auto Parts, better parts, better prices every single day. 855-212-4CBS, 855-212-4227. Hit us up on Twitter at Maggie Gray, at Mark Malusis, or at Moose and Maggie. Three ways you can go about uh, doing that. Let's head out to um, Tennessee. It's Stephen. It's CBS Sports Radio. What's going on, Stephen? Good morning. Good morning. Russ, uh, I was listening to that last caller. Hey, my birthday is March the 12th. I'm two days before Stephon Curry, so I, I'm feeling a little bit better after waking up. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, going back to the issue, I, I, I tuned in late. I didn't start listening to the show until about 20 minutes ago, but uh, – and uh, I'm probably going to get uh, slammed for this, but I think people are overreacting on this issue. I mean, the kid apologized, and then you saw you Darvish's comments how, you know, he apologized, he'll learn from it, let's move on. I mean, why can't we all look at it that way? Here's my thing, though, Steve, and I understand what you're saying, but there's already been a precedent that's been set. And even if he apologized, and you don't think it's a big deal, there are going to be people, and there are people out there that are incredibly offended by this. And because Major League Baseball has already issued suspensions of two games, in some cases three games, for very similar behavior, if they don't suspend him, what message does that send? I understand. I understand. Uh, but, I mean, does, does, does he have a history of any kind of trouble at all? I mean, no. None that I know of. No. The only okay. thing about the history, though, Stephen, is that he actually played in Japan. He knows and, and acknowledged afterwards, I know this is offensive. 
I know this is an offensive thing to say. I said it anyway. Right, but he, he, I mean, but Steve, that and listen, no one's defending what he did. I don't think anyone's going to call. Up, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't uh, agree with what he did. Yeah, and and no, I don't think anyone of, of rash mind or judgment is going to defend what uh, Guriel did last night. Uh, but he, he, I mean, whether or not he has a history of it or not, once you do it, then you've got a history of it. So okay. it's a case of, you know, listen, it, it, it's a case now of well, how does Major League Baseball react to it? Um, Rob Manfred will chat with him reportedly uh, down in Houston at some point today. Uh, before Game 4 of the World Series. We'll see if he does play in Game 4 of the World Series. Um, You know, Maggie believes that uh, he will be suspended. I don't believe he will be suspended. We both think he should be. I I just don't think he will be for Game 4 tonight. I think think Gurriel will be on the field. Yeah, I think think he'll be suspended. I mean, I... It's weird for me when people call up and they say, well, I'm not defending what he did. I just don't think it's a huge deal. It's like, well... Well, no, because he, he the, well, the point from Stephen was that, you know, Hugh Darvish took the high road, talked about, let's try and move on. Let's learn from it. Uh, that's the point from Stephen. It's a fair one. I mean, the, the pitcher that, that Hugh Darvish, that Guriel was directing uh, the racist gesture toward after he hit the home run, talked about moving on as a society. I mean, that, that was the point from Steven there. I can understand that. No, he, of course. I mean, Darvish took the high road here, but that doesn't mean that Gurriel shouldn't be punished for what he said. I mean, that just, I think, shows more class on the side of you, Darvish, than it meant. I don't think you, Darvish, was sending a letter, a, a, a message to Rob Manfred saying, don't suspend him. I, everything's all good. He's taking the high road saying, you know, in the world we live in, being more tolerant, he did say it was disrespectful, though. You Darvish did say that. No, it was he, disrespectful. He, right, but, but he also talked about moving on. He did talk about moving on, but said, I, don't, you know, I don't think that that – that I don't think that – I didn't take that I can't, from I, meaning that it means that um, Guriel should be, you know, I don't think it's one way. I don't think it's one way or another. I don't think he was throwing the book at Guriel, or I don't think he. I don't. I think he was just basically telling you what his thought process was, and his thought process was that he he thinks we should move on. That you know, hopefully, we learn from it as a society, and everyone moves on. Um, and you know, what do you say, accuse or whatever? I, I forget the exact. Uh, I'll pull it up again. The statement by Darvish after the game last night. Um, I don't think it's what he, he took the high road. I, yeah. don't, I don't think he's laying claim one way or the other about how Major League Baseball but uh, should react. Is the lesson really learned if other people who have done similar things got suspended, yet Guriel would not because it's the World Series? Yeah, I mean, I mean then the lesson's not learned, yeah, right? That's a fair point. I mean, it's a fair point. I, I just don't think he will be tonight. I'm not saying that he doesn't deserve or that a fine or a regular season suspension. or so. I, I don't think he'll be suspended for game four tonight. Let's head out to San Francisco. It's 49er D. Hello? Hi. Um, you know, this whole thing with you, Darvish, you, Darvish, Hi. is taking the high road, but that doesn't mean that, that baseball shouldn't should take the high road. Sure. Because, number one, this is called the World Series. It's on the world stage. There are people more than just Americans who are watching this. But Hugh Darvish played in, in Texas for a number of years. And not only that, but if, if Toyota, as a response, as a company, decided to, to withdraw their advertising or close their factories, or, not that they would go that, that extreme, but it, 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 baseball has to consider the fact that there are repercussions and this is a world stage. That's and fair. If somebody had said the N-word or if somebody had said um, uh, 
something um, uh, poorly about um, Latin Americans or something about Germans and calling no, them No, I, I got it. We, we don't have to run through every, uh, you know, we don't have to but run through every. It, it, I get sure it. It's funny, though, that, that people will say, oh, take the high road when it comes to Asians. And yet, no one said, I said Hugh Darvish. Else. No, no, hold on a second. We said Hugh Darvish took the high road. But that's what that, that Hugh Darvish, who pitched for the Los Angeles Dodgers, where the racial dire- gesture was directed toward, if you hop online and you read the statement, he took the high road. So don't put words I in my mouth or Maggie's road, mouth I'm, or anybody else. But so, others should still defend him. Others should still defend him, including the league. That, and, that's and fine. And maybe he gets suspended tonight. Uh, no one's saying that he doesn't deserve. No one has said that he doesn't deserve to be reprimanded. Inequality needs to also be addressed in baseball. What? What about racial inequality? But, uh, how come in the NFL, so many people are getting upset when when the, the predominantly African American players are choosing to kneel as a statement about racial inequality? And yet, when somebody else does it from another race, of another race, there's everyone's wanting to excuse it. Even for your last caller, if somebody had said something disparaging about Tennesseans or about Kentuckians being rednecks or hillbillies, right? I mean, uh, uh, listen, uh, San Francisco, uh, 49er D. I mean, if you're going to call up, call up with your real name, number one. Uh, Number two is uh, you're all over the place. You're basically, the point of your call is that. You think people are excusing the behavior because it, it happened toward uh, an Asian baseball player, a Japanese baseball player, that people aren't going to be up in arms enough because he, he's not Latino, he's not African-American. Um, if it was an African-American pitcher and um, there was a racial gesture in the dugout uh, that without a shadow of a doubt, uh, there would be a suspension coming that said player's way uh, by Major League Baseball. I mean, listen, I... I, I, no one has defended what Guriel did in the dugout last night. No one has said it's A-OK. No one has said it's excused it. Uh, I mean, honestly, you uh, Darvish took the high road. We'll see what Major League Baseball does and react. If if Major League Baseball decides to suspend uh, Guriel tonight for game four, I'll give him credit. I mean, I, he deserves to be reprimanded. But like I mentioned earlier on in the show, because of it being the World Series, like I mentioned earlier, I would not be I would be I would be surprised if he was suspended. But if he ends up being suspended, is it well deserved? Yes, I don't think there's anybody that's going to say it's not well deserved. You know, 49er D was kind of all over the place, but it did sort of remind me of, you know, things that Jeremy Lin has said, you know, about being an Asian American basketball player and a right. lot of the stereotypes that he has been uh that have been forced onto him. And a lot of the stereotypes and a lot of some of the racial slurs that he's encountered in his own career, you know, and maybe it is something that we're not talking about enough. And maybe, you know, you Darvish, you know, credit to him for taking the high road, credit for Lynn to taking the high road. But maybe it is something where, you know, we're not paying attention to it enough when these kinds of things happen. You know, what I'm saying is precedent's already there from baseball. Like what, what more do you need, right? You call someone something racial, homophobic, what have you, it triggers a suspension. World Series or not, I think Rob Manfred's here. I think it's I think it's actually pretty cut and dry. Um, my whole thing is about the players' union. Are they going to then appeal it on behalf oh, of Guriel? And then what happens because your timeline here is very very yeah, fast. Yeah, I mean he, he, they'll appeal. Short, rather. I mean they're. I mean I doubt I doubt they they would not appeal it uh, if he ends up getting suspended. We'll find out. But they're not going to be able to have a meeting. 
and everything uh, before game four tonight. So um, if he gets suspended, we'll find out. We'll see. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Virginia, we go. It's Rich. What's going on, Rich? Hey, Mr. Maggie. Thanks for taking my call. You got it, Rich. Um, yeah, 49er D was a little bit all over the place, but I, I do think he touched on some relevant issues. Uh, my, my question for you guys is, and obviously I know what the real answer is, but um, isn't it incumbent upon the Houston organization to act upon something like this as well? I think we're kind of, you know, the ownership, management, I realize they have a World Series to win. They have the, a responsibility to the fans, the other players, and so forth. Um, baseball has their own process. It can take forever, but I think it would, I think it's incumbent as an organization to act upon this gesture as well. And I do, I do think that folks are saying that, Hey, um, he shouldn't have done it, but we're making too big of a deal out of it. That's kind of hypocritical. It's a big deal. It's especially in today's today's era i just wanted to get your thoughts on what you think houston should do or if they should do anything you know it's really interesting rich because and i think your point is well taken this is something that we actually talk to a lot about uh with our nfl writers at si when a lot of the goodell stuff comes up or you know one of our writers i think it was don banks at the time was saying you know the 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 commissioner's office is kind of also wondering like, Hey, where are the teams in all of this? You know, when you have a a Ray Rice thing happen, or if you have a Greg Hardy or what have you, I think sometimes the teams punt their responsibility, no pun intended, but punt their responsibility to the commissioner's office because they don't want to deal with it. Right. They don't want to potentially have, you know, bad relationships with the players. They don't want to cause tension. They don't want to cause friction in the clubhouse. They don't, they don't want to get involved because it's it can be messy, it can be egos, it can be touchy, it can be contract negotiations, you're talking about agents. They just want to kick it up to the commissioner's office and let it be their problem. Yeah. And you know he and and I think that uh the Rich has a good point. Like maybe the teams do step in. That's one thing I am not expecting is for the Astros to come in and say we're going to sit them for a game. But it's a fair question. I mean, where are the teams, right? What kind but of why team? Why wouldn't do you... you have a well, then? Why wouldn't you have a similar expectation then for the team that you do for the Major League Baseball? I because I think that the team, I feel like they are probably willing to because winning is everything. I think they would be willing to ignore this for the sake of winning a World but then Series. Worse. I'm not saying that they're not. But I do think that they would probably – man, I can't speak for them. Maybe they will. I don't know. Maybe maybe I won't speak no, for the no, Astros. No, no, but, I mean, you said that you don't think Houston would suspend them. I think because they're – yeah, I don't, I don't think they would because I think they're looking at winning as everything and that they wouldn't do that at this time. But that doesn't mean it's right. I'm just telling no, you. No, I, think I, they I are. understand it's not right. I, I'm not. I'm. T- I, but yeah, I mean, I. I don't. I don't think the. I don't think the Astros will step in and, and do anything either. I was just curious why. You, why the delineation? I mean, the difference and. Oh, because um, I think that you have to save the teams from themselves. I mean, they wouldn't do anything to try to lessen their chances of winning this right World Series. Right. But yeah, what's right is right. Right. And I think they're counting on the commissioner's office or not counting on, but they're expecting yeah. the commissioner's office to play yeah, I don't know if that's, I don't the know moral if, arbiter. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if that's necessarily the right thing, though. Let's head out to Pennsylvania. It's Sean. What's going on, Sean? Hey, how you doing? How you doing, Sean? I'm good. I was calling in regards, I agree with Maggie, in the sense of the gesture is completely wrong, even if the cameras wasn't on him. Right. It shouldn't have been said or done. I mean, well, Performed, 
And that's that statement I tell a lot of people, you smile on your face, but talk talk about your behind your behind your back. Yeah, um, but let hold on a second. Let's clarify something, number one, right? I never defended what Guriel said. All I said was that there's a difference if you say something to someone's face and you say something beside someone's back. So yes. there's nothing there's nothing we're both in it, we're all in agreement this morning that what Guriel did last night was uncalled for. And there's no place for yes, it. Yes, yes. So yes, what's your next yes, point? But what I, I hear I hear what you're saying, um, Moose. But at the same time, I believe that's just true colors. Yeah, I'm not. And, I'm not. No one's defending Guriel. The the point, and it's it, it's it's a marginal point. So it's a matter of whether you say something to someone's face or you say something to someone's back. So it, it's listen. It is what it is. What's your second point? Um, that was my only point, sir. Okay, you got it. I mean, uh, you know, I I I mean, I, I don't know exactly, uh, but I mean, no one is the defended Guriel this morning and said it's A-OK what he did in the dugout last night. It's a case of what do you what do you think is going to happen uh, moving forward here by Major League Baseball and by the Houston Astros and if he'll play tonight in game four and how does baseball handle it? Let's head out to Los Angeles. It's Susan. What's going on, Susan? Hi. Um, I was calling because I listened to the entire um, Spanish um, questioning of Guriel with um, – uh, his translator, and okay. I think that he was actually uh, making fun of himself. Um, I understand Spanish, and also in Latin America, that part where he's from, um, when you say Chinito, it's kind of like um, he was saying in the dugout, <laughs> basically that he never got a hit off Darvish, and he must have turned a little bit Asian, okay? Like... He's he's joking about him being Asian because he was able to hit Darvish, and he says that when he when he's talking to all of the Spanish speaking reporters, he's talking about how he was joking about himself, and even though he apologizes and everything, I'm, I'm obviously he it was a very backwards thing he did in a private moment talking to one of his teammates. I'm not defending it. But I don't think he was making fun of Darvish. And also, even if he was, he wasn't going out yelling it like the other precedents that are being talked about, about other players using expletives or calling names, calling people. Right, and that's where we got into the difference between one or the other uh, earlier on in the show. But I want to ask you, Susan, you you mentioned the fact that, and I'm not bilingual, right? Um, right, or anything of the nature. How, because I'm always curious when I'm, you know, whether it be Japanese players, Latin American players, and you see a translator there, how close, when you're hearing the question being asked and the answer being given, how close is the translation to what the player actually said to what the translator says to the American media? Um, Guriel's translator was very, um, like, um, upset about what was going on. I think they were both surprised by what was happening. Um, so they were, Guriel was answering, and the guy was explaining pretty much what he was saying. You okay, know? And, so they um, did a good job overall. They do a good job. Yeah, I mean, I don't speak Japanese. Um, my no, husband's actually talking about, Japanese. I, right, this, I'm talking about the Spanish uh, translator. Yeah, the Spanish guy was pretty, he's, you know, some of the translators are better in their native language than they are translating to English. It's better for English speakers if the translator is better at English than Spanish, but for the player, it's better to have the person 
gotcha. be more familiar with their own language. I got you. So you think Guriel was making fun of himself more so yes. than that's what yes, he's Yes, I do. Listen. I don't think, I mean, I think, and that's what he says, actually. Now, if you listen to, if you listen to the whole thing, and a lot of it, it's like 10 or 15 minutes, and a lot of them are questions being asked by um, Spanish-speaking um, reporters. And they're asking him, and he's saying, he, I'm listening to him say in Spanish, I never got a hit off this guy before, and I was, he was basically saying, I'm not, look, it's really backward what he was saying, okay? It's like super unevolved. But he was basically saying, I became a little chinito because I was able to get a hit off of Darvish. And when he did the slanty eye thing, which is reprehensible, I mean, it's Stupid Here's the bottom line. You can't do the slanty eye thing. And, you know, even if he did, and Susan, thank you for the call, but you, you can't do the gesture. You know that. And here's from the article from the postgame from ESPN. Guriel added it's common in Cuba to use that word to describe someone of Asian heritage, although he admitted he realizes it's considered offensive in Japan. He played yeah, there. No he knows it. it's offensive. Whether it was, however his backwards explanation was, it was offensive. And that's the bottom line. Moose Maggie, CBS Sports Radio. This is the Moose and Maggie Show on CBS Sports Radio. Rolling right along here on this Saturday morning. 855-212-4CBS, 855-212-4227, your number to call to get involved. Um, a lot of things to get into. We'll yes. get into the comments by Texans owner Bob McNair coming up here in a little bit. But uh, let's get to a little sports rewind right now. Okay, Moose, October 28th, 1995. It was on this day that the Atlanta Braves and Cleveland Indians played game six of the World Series. The Braves won the game 1-0 to capture their third World Series title, but first since 1957. Now, this was a close series. Five out of the six games decided by just one run. Tom Glavin was selected to start game six, and he did not disappoint. He pitched eight incredible innings of one-hit shutout baseball. The Braves entered the ninth inning with a 1-0 lead and turned to closer Mark Wohlers to save to close out the game, he would go on to shut the door on the Indians to give the Braves the title. Tom Glavin was named World Series MVP as he had also got the win in Game 2. Although the Braves made 14 straight postseason appearances from 91 to 2005, this was the only year that they won it all. Braves outfielder David Justice was responsible for the lone run as he homered off Jim Poole to lead off the bottom of the sixth inning. Said Justice, there was so much riding on this World Series. We had to win it. I couldn't imagine putting our players, our coaches, our manager, our organization, our city through another gut-wrenching defeat. October 28, 1995, the Braves beat the Indians in Game 6 of the World Series. There you go. Dave Justice, one of the sweetest lefty swings you'll ever see. Yeah. Um, really, did, it really was and uh, went on and had success with the Yankees as well and uh, but certainly uh, a very, very talented Atlanta team when you look at that era of, of Major League Baseball that should have won a lot more yeah. uh, than they did, and that was during the the Yankee great run, the Tory run as well, um, was there when they won a World Series 96, 98, 99, 2000, went to it in 2001, 2003 as well, losing to the Diamondbacks and the Marlins, but uh, the Braves certainly really talented when you look at uh, Glavin, Smoltz, and Maddox, uh, Wallers wasn't great, uh, but uh, you look at that Braves team, uh, certainly, uh, you know, they had Ron Gant for a time, David Justice. Yeah. I mean, 
It was a really, really talented Braves team during that era. Yeah, Fun man- team to watch. Managed by Bobby Cox. Yeah. S- tortured Leo Mets Mazzoni fans for ro- so rocking long. on the bench, the <laughs> pitching coach. I mean, it was a it was a good era and a fun era uh, for Braves baseball. It was good to see that they finally won. Unfortunately, breaking the hearts of of the Cleveland Indians uh, during that time as well. This is the Moose and Maggie Show on CBS Sports Radio. All right, when it's time to replace your battery, trust the professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts help you choose the superstar battery that's an exact fit for your vehicle. O'Reilly Auto Parts, better parts, better prices every single day. It was an eventful week in the NFL. Another eventful week in the NFL is, uh, you know, we heard most last last week coming out of the meetings between the NFL players, NFL certain NFL owners, and league executives, union ex- executives. You know, for the most part, the feeling kind of coming out of those meetings, save for, you know, a, a few things, a few definite sticking points. Right. But the overwhelming feeling was okay. Things are, conversations are happening, right? There are directions, at least things are, there's momentum a little bit. Things are moving in the right direction with regards to whether the players, and it's, you know, a handful of players at this point. I think last week it might have been 22 NFL players who either uh, kneeled or raised a fist, things like that. And sort of what's this going to be moving forward? And what do the players want from the NFL in terms of, you know, fighting for social justice and inequality and and addressing these issues head on. You know, what do they want in terms of, you know, Colin Kaepernick and why he doesn't have a job and and what do they want from to see from the owners to sort of, you know, to to rectify, maybe that's the wrong word, but to resolve a lot of the tension that is obviously between some of the most hardline owners and some of the more moderate ones, just the league and the players in general. And thought that maybe coming out of those meetings last week, Moose, that things were sort of going towards a place of good conversations, productive conversations. And I feel like all of that, or at least a good majority of that, has now been completely wiped away now that we know the comments that Houston Texans owner Bob McNair said at the then all-owners meetings after the fact, where Troy Vincent from the NFL was there, but these were, this was a meeting only with owners, not just what Bob McNair said, but also what Dan Snyder said. And, of course, McNair's is getting a lot of the attention here because he said uh, the the inmates... Running the asylum. No, he said running the prison. Running the prison. Had right. he said inmates running the asylum, I right. don't think he'd be getting the blowback that he is because that is an idiom. Right. It is something that people say, and I guess it is less offensive to call people crazy than to call them inmates. I mean... It is a kind of weird idiom, and to be used in that context, it doesn't. It isn't a good one, right? To be used in this context, where the players who are protesting are doing it not for for their health. I mean, they're doing it for real reasons here. I'm saying not their health; like they're not doing it just for the sake of it. They are trying to really address well, these. Trying to bring about change, really, right. really, which we've discussed huge tangible causes, sure. right? And I think that what Bob McNair said, and he also apologized. But again, he did the apology that I absolutely despise when people do this. I'm sorry to any if anyone felt offended. No, say you're sorry because it was offensive. You know, don't say I'm sorry if it offended anyone. Say I'm sorry because I said it and it was offensive at the time. And it's offensive to use it in this context. And he said, I didn't mean it. I wasn't talking about the players when I was when I was saying. Let's just read the statement. I regret that I used the expression I ever meant to offend anyone. I was not referring to our players. I used a figure of speech that was never intended to be taken literally. 
I would never characterize our players or our league that way, and I apologize to anyone who was offended by it. I don't – who are you talking about then? Yeah. I mean, you look at this uh, – at the the piece, and the, the ESPN.com piece, and it was brilliantly reported by Don Venata Jr. by Seth Wickersham. They did a great job. I mean, this – if. If you are not talking about the players, who are you talking about exactly? Because that's the issue that was on the table while they were talking about this. Not only that, Troy Vincent from the play from the used to be the Players Association, now with the league, they had a back and forth about it because Troy was obviously took this as offensive. He said, "I played in the NFL for over a decade. I never once felt like an inmate." And then Bob McNair went and apologized to him afterwards. So, I think Bob McNair, and then add on top of it, Dan Snyder owner of Washington says 96% of people want the players to think the players should be standing. I mean, what polls are you reading, bud? I mean, yeah, you, yeah. you have to be so out of touch. I can't even, I can't even think if you actually have that, you think that's the truth. That means you don't read a newspaper. That right. means you do not talk to anyone who is not exactly like you. That means that your circle has to be so tight that you can have this misinformation spouted out at, amongst all of your NFL owners and think you're going to be taken seriously? I mean, that's just insane. Yeah. So between the two of them, the the two of these owners, the fact that this got out, I feel like all of the potentially good vibes that came out of that first owners meeting and players meeting had been completely wiped away. The NFL is a huge problem on their hands. DeAndre Hopkins went home, the ESPN and Adam Schefter reported that it was totally related to this. You saw Dwayne Brown saying things. They felt like this was not right. I mean, this is now going to be taken to another fever pitch level where the NFL, man, I mean, you, you do not understand like where we are, that sensitivities are heightened, that this is the worst possible thing that you could say at the worst possible moment. You revealed your true colors. Yeah, I, well, but the when, players are going to uh, be when, really when upset. Do, when, do we, when do we get to the issues, though? I mean, when when do the when do we start addressing the issues that the players are talking about? Well, the, I mean, I, because the now because it, now it's all talk. I mean, at some point in time, and listen, what McNair said was reprehensible. What Daniel Snyder said, he's completely and utterly lost. I mean, the NFL has got a massive issue on their hands. But I mean, Maggie, when when do we start to address as a nation then the issues that the players are are trying to instead of it being always constantly talking about who's kneeling, who's not. Uh, who should be kneeling? What does this owner say? What is Goodell not doing? When when do we start to talk about and address the issues that that need to be addressed? Because those are still going on. Because all this uh, all this other all, all of it all, everything else is just talk. I mean, if you're not if you're not going to go out and try and bring about tangible change, then what are we doing here? I mean, because nothing's being. Uh, I mean. The idea that Colin Kaepernick, after eight months, said he's no longer going to kneel because he saw tangible change in our society in eight, eight, nine months? Really? No. I mean, honestly. Moose, uh, that... I mean, I you kept... didn't. I mean, there's no... no. There, there's no way you did. But I, I, no, no, I'm Moose, getting I'm to... saying that, that report might not have been true. That came out recently that Kaepernick apparently never said that he wasn't going to kneel if he well, came back. Well, but Maggie, that was, we took, that but, was not going to report. But, but that... Wait a second. That we talked about that six months ago. I know, but it turns out that recently it came to then light that Kaepernick never and, said. Then why did he come out and say that that's not true? He never came out and said that that wasn't true. Said it that was reported by multiple outlets. That wasn't reported by just one outlet. Uh, I thought it was reported by one, and then everyone took it from there. But it was recent because we talked to Dave Zirin about it, and he said that, Ka that Kaepernick never said whether he would or would not. 
So, that, so then he did not, but he did not deny it when the report came out. No, he didn't. But I'm just saying that it might, it might not. He, we haven't heard from Kaepernick at all. I mean, right. I'm just saying well, that. But I mean, I, I guess that's well, a new development. Listen, the the Texans and Bill O'Brien. I mean, and what McNair said. It's, I mean, it's deplorable. I mean, you know, if he's not referring to his players, then who the hell is he referring to? Uh, as you just mentioned. But when do we? When does it become a point here where you bring about change? When, when does it come a point here where you address the issues, uh, you know, inside the African-American community, uh, dealing with law enforcement, the way that uh, the the uh, the way that, uh, you know, the, the minorities are treated in this country? Uh, you know, wh- when do we start to address and, and at- attack the issues at hand that that we've been talking about and discussing for well over a year and a half now? And when, when does that when does that become the topic of conversation? Because now it's all about kneeling. Now it's all about who's protesting, who's not protesting, who's upset, who's not upset. I mean, what side do you? I mean, that you know, national anthem. Who's uh, you know, who's bothered if you're not standing for the national anthem? When when do we start to talk about the real issues at hand? Well, because that, those the, aren't because those aren't being addressed. Well, I think that's what the players are trying to do, right? I think that's what the players have been saying this whole time. Why get caught up in? Why are we still caught up? in the what we're doing and why can't people see the why we're doing this? Why why is it, you know, people are calling it quote-unquote national anthem protest. That's not what it is. It's protesting these other things and doing it on the platform to get the most attention and doing it during the national anthem. There are some people who just cannot get past that. They don't care what the players are trying to say. They only care that they're doing it during the national anthem. Meanwhile, the players have been saying this whole time, we are trying to bring about all of this attention to other causes. There have been some some small wins, Moose. There really have. I mean, you had Roger Goodell and Doug Baldwin. They both signed a joint um, letter to uh, was it Congress about uh, about um, uh, inmate reform and 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 uh, the, in the prison system. I mean, you are seeing some things, right? In this article, this ESPN article, where they had Anna Isaacson, who's the who works in the NFL, they had this sort of three-pronged sort of uh, plan of how they wanted the NFL to deal with these issues. You know, expanding the "My Cause, My Cleats" campaign right. to be, you know, giving uh, more time, like they do for breast cancer and for military awareness, like the uh, military appreciation. Rather, they wanted social justice issues to be part of that as well. I mean, they are trying to put out a plan here. The problem is, is when you have owners like McNair who come out and say things like it, I think the the players then see all of this as just being really disingenuous because it's like, if you really think of me as an inmate, how could you ever think of me as an equal? And, it, you know, if you're going to use that kind of language, then why would I think that you actually care what I'm, you know, what I'm proposing, what I'm saying, and it, it feels like you're being talked down to. You know, the players are seeing this as like a social justice thing. The owners are seeing this as only like a business thing. Not all owners. Looks like Jed York, Jeff Lurie, a little bit different. But the owners are just looking at this. Like the owners like McNair and Jerry Jones and Dan Snyder, they want a mandate that the players stand because they feel like it's going to be a business. But it is affecting their business. But you also see from the ESPN.com piece that there is a prominent um, NFL sponsor that they did not name who's saying that if there is a mandate that all players have to stand for the anthem, they will pull out. So, But there, but there's not going to – I mean, but we're past that. There's not going to be a mandate. Goodell addressed that already. But the, the hardline owners are still 
Yeah, but potentially but, they, want but, this. but they're not gonna. But I, I understand that. But it's not happening. I mean, it's that's not happening. I, I I guess my point is, if something's not gonna happen, why continue to address it? I mean, it, you know, Goodell is not mandating that every player stand for the national anthem. You have every right to protest, right? But why? Why is here? Here? Why is the NBA have a handle on this? And why is the National Football League? It's like a raging fire out of control. Why is it a case where, you know, the NBA and, and Adam Silver tells his players and tells the players in the league you're going to stand for the National Anthem, uh, and the National Football League, it's basically like they can't get out of their own way. I think it's two things. I think, one, there is a much better relationship between the commissioner of the NBA and the players, and I think the players feel like they have a real voice and have real power when it comes to the NBA. I also don't think you have NBA owners who come out and say, we don't no, no, want but the inmates was, running the yeah, prison. Yeah, but this was before McNair's comments. This, this was before what McNair did to this week to enrage it even further. And when that story gets leaked out and before what Daniel Snyder said, this was this was a raging fire out of control before this week. Why is it, I mean, you talk about the relationship, that's fair between the commissioner and Goodell should be out. I mean, if I'm one of the owners for the National Football League, then, you know, his contract has not been re-signed, re-up, then he would be out moving forward here. Because, Maggie, at some point in time, you've got to start talking about, as you mentioned, the cleats for the cause, what, everything that they're trying to bring about and trying to bring about tangible change. That needs to be the focus and the talking points week in and week out instead of who's offended, who's not of who's kneeling and who's not. I mean, each and every Sunday you watch a game, you hop on Twitter and you find out who, how many players per team are kneeling during the national anthem. Honestly, I want to see what those players, I want to see what the NFL, I want to see what the owners, I want to see what everyone in, in this league is doing to try and get into the community to bring about change. I don't care anymore about who's kneeling during the national anthem. I don't because it's brought awareness to the cause. Now it's a matter of attacking the cause. Right, it's a matter of addressing the issue at hand because at some point in time, that's got to be the focus. Because it's been a year and a half about who's kneeling and who's not, who's offended, and who's not. I think the players have been clear about what they want. I think. Well, but they then have. the players also have to take action inside the community as well. I think they each are. and every one of them. They're they're putting their. I mean, listen, they're putting their money where their mouth is. First of all, they're but they're also putting their time. Well, I mean, it's great. You're That's talking fantastic. about the Malcolm Jenkins of the world. I mean, I'm not denying the, Malcolm the Jenkins. Defensive Malcolm line. Jenkins, fantastic. I think they are. I think that where you're seeing the hang up here, where you're seeing the pushback, is from the owners clearly because they just want the players to stand because they think it's good for business. Uh, and absolutely. By, and if you're going to do that, I understand that it's just the you know it's, it's the optics of it, but that is also sending a message, which is. You can't be expressing yourself in a peaceful way and uh, exercising your First Amendment rights because it hurts my bottom line. And that's not the right message. That's not what the players want to hear. And that's not, but, I think but, that's offensive. But Maggie, but I mean, it is affecting. I mean, you know, whatever you want to say, you look at the individual ratings across the league, people are tuning out. For a lot of reasons. For a lot of reasons. Yeah. And one of them being the national anthem protest. And also people are tuning out because they don't like the way that Kaepernick has been treated and how the I mean, I mean, they uh, have moves. Yeah, it's mean, both listen, sides. Uh, to, uh, no question about it to a, a percentage as well. I mean, there's, there's a lot of issues with the National Football League. So, but I, I want to know why is it why is it just the NFL? This isn't a baseball problem. It's not an NBA problem. Um, this is an NFL problem. I mean, it's solely on the National Football League, and they can't get a handle on it. Moose and Maggie with you, CBS Sports Radio. This is the Moose and Maggie Show on CBS Sports Radio.
All right, hour number three here on this Saturday morning on CBS Sports Radio, 855-2124-CBS, 855-2124-227. Your number to call to get involved. Let's get into a little college football. Big games abound, a big one in Columbus, Ohio, uh, later on this afternoon between Ohio State and Penn State. Jason Kersey covers uh, college football for The Athletic, joins us now. Jason, Mark Malusis, Maggie Gray, thanks for a couple minutes this morning. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you got it. And let's start there with that big matchup. I mean, you look at the Nittany Lions right now, 7-0 on the season, number two in the land as they go into uh, Columbus, Ohio. I mean, they could afford a loss. They could and remain relevant and get in that top four. I mean, Ohio State can't after the loss to Oklahoma earlier on in the regular season. How much of the Buckeyes improved here, Jason, last month of the season? I mean, they do look like a, a largely different team. I mean, JT Barrett's been been excellent since uh, since that Oklahoma game. But man, Penn State looks really good. Uh, Saquon Barkley's been just unbelievable. I mean, I, I can't wait for this matchup. I mean, uh, you, like you said, I mean, I think I think Penn State could probably afford a loss, but but if they can get a win, I mean, they're they're uh, they're probably pretty smooth sailing. I just don't see how they can afford a loss, though, because if they lose to Ohio State and both teams win out from there on, Ohio State goes to the Big Ten championship game because they would yeah, own the but, head-to-head. So even if right, they, but you've but you've seen a team outside the championship game be able to get into get into the Final Four, conceivably yeah, speaking. Just, well, just I mean, last just year, last, right, right? Because Penn State went to the Rose Bowl, but I think that they would correct for that this year because there was such an outrage. I don't know if they would do that two years in a row. I guess, Jason, I'm surprised. This I know Penn. I think State, Penn State could get in that time, Final uh, Four even if they lost today. If they lose today by a late field goal, Ohio State, and they went out the rest of the way, ooh. you're not going to say Ohio Penn State's not one of the top four teams in the land the way that they played this year. I mean, I'm not. Sure, I feel like you're definitely leaving it up to chance. I don't think that you're guaranteeing yourself I'm anything. I'm not saying there's a guarantee, but I, I would think that they could still conceivably, if Ohio State loses today, they're done. Well, they're uh, Penn done, State, without a doubt. If they lose today, they still have an argument to be made of getting in that funnel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I don't. I just because of the amount of backlash from last year from Penn State fans and how they felt, where they felt like you said that the championship game was supposed to mean something. And then it didn't. I don't know. I, I feel like it's not a given that Penn State would be able to get in even if they lose. But, you know, Jason, I guess I know that Penn State really hasn't played any. They haven't really been tested, you know, in terms of their schedule so far. But I was surprised to see that Ohio State was a seven-point favorite in this game. Why do you think Vegas sees it that way? You know, I don't know. Those guys seem to always have their finger on the pulse of uh, of things a little bit better than the rest of us. And I don't, I've never quite figured out why that is. But um, but you know, I, I I don't I don't agree with that line either. I mean, I think the way that Penn State uh, beat Michigan uh, alone, and the way that they uh, slaughtered that defense, should be enough to to make them maybe a slight favorite in this one. All right, how about Georgia and Florida? Um, when you look at this matchup, Gators going into this one, they're you know nearly a two touchdown underdog against the Bulldogs of Georgia, and Kirby Smart's team has been fantastic this year. You know, strange game because it's a huge rivalry game, and you get a little concerned there. I mean, if there's a game that Florida's going to get going for, it's against Georgia. What about this matchup? Do you give the Do you give the Gators a, any kind of an opportunity to pull off the stunner? Well, you know, the last two times that Georgia was a uh, national, legit national title contender going into this game, Florida beat them and upset them. Even in 2014, Georgia was in, in the top ten. Florida was on the verge of getting Will Muschamp fired that year, and Florida still beat them. Um, so I guess they have a chance, um, but 
man, I just don't see how they win this game. Florida has not been able to score any points, and Georgia's defense is so good. Um, you know, I think Jake Fromm and, and that and that offense will be able to do enough. I mean, especially with those running backs, Michelle and and, uh, and Nick Chubb. Um, I, I just don't see how Florida can keep up with them, uh, particularly with the way Georgia's playing defense. Florida has no offense, and um, I don't know how they get one this week against that defense. We're talking with Jason Kersey of The Athletic. Um, a question for you about Georgia, right? Is there a path, Jason, where they can get to the college football playoff even if they would lose to Alabama in the SEC championship game? I think there is. I think that, you know, if if it was uh, if they if that's their only loss and it's a close loss, um I could I could absolutely see the the committee putting them in. I mean, the um the committee's made it clear that their their job is to put the best four teams in. Uh, regardless of, of, you know, I mean, obviously conference championships matter and, and those things matter, but if they believe that they're one of the, still one of the top four teams and that's a close loss, maybe by a late field goal or something, um, or a fluky play, I, I could absolutely see them putting two SEC teams in because right now you have the Pac-12 is, is, is probably out yeah. um, or uh, – I, probably out. You have Notre, you have Notre Dame uh, that could creep in and, and and spoil things. But Georgia has a head-to-head win over Notre Dame. Uh, and then the Big Twelve. I mean, right now is is not. I mean, if TCU wins out, then they probably get in. But if Oklahoma beats TCU, then they all have one loss. I, you know, I don't, I don't know. It, that that that's going to be real interesting to see what happens if if indeed Georgia's only loss is to Alabama or Alabama's only loss is to Georgia. Yeah, I mean, just the the eyeball test, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, none of those two teams are one of the top four teams in the country. I mean, honestly, if you look at it, uh, regardless of where their record is right now, you mentioned Notre Dame at home against North Carolina State this afternoon. Going to be an interesting one in South Bend. You know, Kelly is, is called off the dogs there. He was certainly on the hot seat coming into this year. This Irish team is really surging, and you mentioned it, uh, has got an opportunity if they win out to get themselves into those national semifinals. What about this mit- uh, matchup uh, against a pretty good Wolfpack team? Yeah, North Carolina State's done a really good job, I think, coming back from that early season loss that I still don't quite understand to South Carolina because, you know, I don't think South Carolina is a great team, but they managed to beat them in the in the opener. But, uh, but no, Notre Dame's been, been unbelievable, and that win last week over USC was very impressive. Um, like you said, I think Brian Kelly has done a really nice job this year. Um, I, I'll be real interested to see uh, how they come out today and, and play against against NC State. And and if they if they can keep winning, then you know there's no reason uh, there's no reason to think they can't spoil the the college football playoff and 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 potentially knock two Power Five conferences out of it. Yeah, I mean they still have so many amazing teams left to play, right? I mean, it's not just NC State. They also have to play Miami. They also have to play Stanford. Navy yep. always gives people trouble. Um, Wake should, you know, probably be okay. But, the, you, you know, it's also raises an interesting question there, Moose, and also for Jason, because if you have, if NC State pulls off the stunner today, then they play Clemson next week. Yeah. If they're able, I mean, Clemson, we're not even talking about them because the ACC seems like they're down this year. You saw what happened to Florida State last night. Oh. But Clemson absolutely would have to get in with one loss, no doubt about it, right, Jason? I would think so. Yeah. I, I mean, I would think they get in uh, with one loss. Uh, but you know, NC State is a team that if they get by Notre Dame, then I think you know they could potentially beat beat Clemson, and then and then the whole thing is sort of thrown into into a tailspin. I mean, I, I, I love it when, when, when all this stuff sort of gets thrown out and, and we, you know, you, you have no idea what's going to happen and there's some chaos and all this. I think that's what kind of makes it fun. So, 
So uh, I'm all for it. <laughs> uh, who do you think wins today, NC State or Notre Dame? I got Notre Dame in this one. I, I think at home they're they're so hot right now, and um, you know I'm I'm still not totally sold on NC State because of that South Carolina loss. You know, interesting. It, it's going to be a fun one in Morgantown, and football oh, yeah. games are certainly always uh, as the Mountaineers oh, get set to entertain the Cowboys of Oklahoma State. Um, you know, it's a, it's an Oklahoma State team that you know I started to believe in, and then the TCU game happened, and then uh, jumped right off that bandwagon, but. <laughs> You know, they've rallied since that point. How about this one? You know, uh, the Cowboys go into this one as an eight-point favorite. I think that's a lot of points to give West Virginia at home. Yeah, I, I picked West Virginia to win this one uh, straight up. I, I I think that they're, you know, Morgantown is one of the craziest places I've ever covered a college football game. Uh, I love that, that stadium, that atmosphere. Um, and, and, you know, I think that, that's a dangerous place for, for Oklahoma State to be going. I, I, I love Oklahoma State's offense. I think Mason Rudolph is unbelievable. James Washington's unbelievable. Um, but, uh, you know, West Virginia is playing pretty well right now, and, and, and I think getting this game at home uh, gives them the edge. I, 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 I'm with you. I, again, I mean, same thing. I don't, I don't know where Vegas is getting that from because I really like I, – I certainly don't think that uh, – I, I think it's going to be closer than that at least. Yeah, and with Will Greer, 26 touchdown passes, leads college football. David Sills, fantastic He's wide fun receiver. To watch, We're talking with Jason Kersey from The Athletic, covers the SEC. Um, you know, one question I have for you, Jason, just because it, it's more in your beat, in terms of coaches in the SEC, I mean, how much turnover do you think we're going to be seeing here at the end of the season? Well, I mean, I think Butch Jones is probably gone. Um, I, I think that that's, uh, you know, the, 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 how, with how badly they've played lately, I'm not sure how he can save his job at this point. Um, you know, until last week, I thought Brett Bielema was probably safe. Um, but the way that they lost to Auburn, now they've, they haven't beaten a Power 5 opponent since, like, last November. Um, so I, I don't, I'm not sure that Brett Bielema is safe anymore. Um, you know, those are the two that sort of that sort of jump out. I think those those are the two most likely changes. Um, uh, and, and and well, and then obviously Ole Miss. I don't think that, I I can't imagine that Matt Luke will be back. I think Ole Miss is probably going to want to totally clean house and and move on from the from that era. But um, but I mean, those are the three that, that definitely come to mind. But but to me, Butch Jones is the one on the hottest seat. Um, I, I I don't see how you bring him back. I mean, with with Bielema, there's a fairly big buyout. Um, I think Jeff Long still really believes in him, uh, and they've had a bunch of injuries this year. With Butch Jones, I mean, the, the excuses have sort of run out for him. I mean, they've had the most talented team in the SEC East in a weak SEC East for several years and haven't even been able to get to the, to the championship game. So, uh, and, and then this year's just been a total disaster. Jason, I, you know, maybe it's sacrilege to do, but I, I'm going to ask you a question. How good is Alabama? Right, and and I know you you know they're undefeated, they're number one in the land. I, I get all that, right? But if I look at Alabama and and they're a very very good football team, or is they as good as years gone by? I look at their schedule this year, right? Now, Florida State, the complexion of the Seminoles changed when Francois got hurt in that opening week, uh, an opening game loss to the Alabama Crimson Tide. So you give Florida State the quality: Fresno, Colorado State, Vandy, Ole Miss, A and M. Arkansas and Butch Jones in Tennessee, which they won by 38 points. I mean, they're not really a, I would say, vaunted schedule. It's not like they've been playing the best of the best around the country. Just how good is this Alabama team? 
Well, you know, it, you mentioned the Florida State game, and, and I agree. It's, it doesn't carry quite the same weight that it once did. But I, um, I, I still, you know, it, it was unbelievable to me how that was such a huge built-up matchup, um, an unbelievable atmosphere, and it's just turned out to sort of be one team maybe is great and one team may not make a bowl. So um, I, I, I think Alabama is a really good team. I mean, I think the way that they've won some of these games, the dominating fashion uh, in which they've done it, um, maybe sets them apart. I, I think their defense is, is unreal, the, the talent that they have um, on that side of the ball. And then, I mean, geez, uh, Jalen Hurts and, and Bo Scarborough and Damian Harris have, just been, have all been really good this year. So I, I mean, I, I still think they're a really great team, but, but I, I agree that maybe they haven't really been all that tested, tested this year. And so, uh, you know, now when it's it, – they're not going to play another ranked team, I don't think, till well, they'll play LSU and then Auburn. And then Auburn and last week. be pretty good tests because, because I do think LSU is a much improved team from that team that lost to Troy. So I think those are those will be two good tests. But, um, you know, Georgia is going to end up, I think, probably being better tested by the time they get to the championship game just because of that Notre Dame game. Which will which, be fascinating. Yeah, which they won by the skin of their teeth on the road. Right. Mm-hmm. But um, it's good. I just had a quick yeah, follow-up on Hurts. Has Hurts improved enough as a passer uh, to where if they if a team shuts down the ground game and his ability to run it, which is difficult to do, that he can that he could throw Alabama offensively to a win? I don't think that he's a great passer, but I think he's good enough. Okay. Yeah, I do. I and, and I think and I think, you know. Calvin Ridley is a really clutch receiver. I, I, I think that they are good enough in the passing game to, to stave that off. But I'll be honest with you, I don't see very many people shutting down that running game. Final one for me, Jason. You've seen a lot of these quarterbacks. We're expecting this to be one of the great classes. or very good class coming out uh, to go to the NFL draft. In terms of what you've seen, who do you think has the best potential in terms of making it to the next level? Oh man, yeah, that, that's that's a good question because you know I would have said Sam Darnold probably before the season, and now I think he's probably coming back. I'd probably say Josh Rosen. I I think that he's um, you know extremely smart, very talented. Um, you know UCLA is not a great team, but but I think Josh Rosen is is probably the the guy that I would go with. Jason Kersey of The Athletic. Jason, really appreciate your time this morning. Have fun watching all these college football games today. I just wish they'd stagger them. Can they not stagger them? Jason, thank you. (laughs) All going on at one time. I mean, all last week it was at night on Saturday Uh. night, and uh, this week it's at uh, 3.30 Eastern time in the afternoon. Hope you have multiple TVs, Jason. That's it. Coming up, we're going (laughs) to give you some college picks. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate it. We're going to give you some college picks straight ahead, Uh, and we're going to talk to uh, Jim Ross later on the show. Uh, his book, Slobberknocker, My Life in Wrestling, uh, coming up later on this hour as well. As we roll right along, Moose and Maggie with you, CBS Sports Radio. This is the Moose and Maggie Show on CBS Sports Radio. All right, make sure to trust the professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts to help you choose the brakes that are exact fit for your vehicle. Brands you trust like Brake Best, Wagner, Thermo, Quiet, O'Reilly Auto Parts has the brake parts you need at guaranteed low prices. O'Reilly Auto Parts, better parts, better prices every single day. Let's get to it. An intriguing Saturday of college football. Let's get to some picks. 
All right, where'd we go last week, Anthony? Oh, you guys killed a college football. You're yes. both three and zero. So Maggie's there now thirteen and eleven overall in college, and Moose, you're fifteen and nine. There you go. Oh, Moose, very nice. Rolling oh. along. All right, uh, game number one. All right. Let's start with the big one: Ohio State, Penn State. Okay. Buckeyes seven point. You favorite. go first. I'm going to take second. Penn State. Uh, I'll take the Nittany Lions plus the seven. I think they're going to win the game outright. I just think they're a better football team right now. McSorley throwing it. Saquon Barkley, I think he'll have a Heisman moment this afternoon. I'm not doubting that the Buckeyes have turned a corner a little bit. Barrett's looked better at quarterback over the last month here for the Buckeyes as they've gotten healthier and they've routed teams and started to find a little bit of a rhythm. I just think it's way too many points. Um, So I'm going to take Penn State on the road. Uh, plus the seven, that's game number one. You know, I feel like, does Vegas know something about the Penn State defense that we don't know? I mean, I know that they're going to need a really big game today, but to me, I I agree. The points just seem like way too much, so I'm going to take the Nittany Lions plus the seven also. Not just Barkley and Trace McSorley and Deshaun Hamilton. We know that they can play, but I feel like if this defense can hold JT Barrett, which they were able to do actually a year ago when they were able to beat Ohio State Grand. I know that was in Happy Valley, but I think if they're able to make him uncomfortable, I think that that is the reason why you've seen this Ohio State offense, you know, what they've won five straight by 42 points, over 500 yards of offense in their last five games. I get that, but I think if they start with with JT Barrett, I think that could really um, – make Ohio State one-dimensional, and I think that will lead to, obviously, some good things for the Nittany Lions. I'm not so sure about them winning out, but I'll take the points. So give me Penn State plus the seven. All right, to South Bend we go. Notre Dame, number nine in the country, taking on North Carolina State. Wolfpack, 14th in the country. Both teams coming to this one, six and one on the season. Notre Dame, a seven-point favorite over North Carolina State. And I'm going to lay the seven with the Irish. I think they're playing too well right now. Um, I've got to see North Carolina State go into South Bend um, and and play within a touchdown in Notre Dame. I just don't see it. Um, it could be wrong, but I love Adams running it uh, for the Irish. Uh, love what they've gotten from the quarterback as well. I mean, this has been a fun Notre Dame team, and their only loss this year uh, was a close home loss uh, to the Georgia Bulldogs, who happened to be undefeated. They've got an opportunity to play for a national championship, as do the Irish, and they can't afford a hiccup. They've got to win out after that loss to Georgia, and that counts today. Give me the Irish laying the seven at home against the Wolfpack. That's pick number two. You know, I'm going to go with NC State and take the seven. Uh, NC State plus seven, that will be my pick. I think that we just, I think NC State's a little bit underrated, quite frankly, even though they are 14th in the country. Um, I think that they have the ability because they have this, they do have a great offense. And I think that between Finley and between Hines and Samuels, they are multiple. Um, It's going to be a tough task. They are coming off their bye week. What I just hope is not happening is they have Notre Dame and then they have Clemson. So this is obviously the gauntlet for them in terms of their season. I hope they're not looking ahead to that Tigers game because obviously the ACC, that's everything. But I think that NC State's going to be able to keep this one close. They've got the extra week to prepare. I know Notre Dame's coming off that high, a big win against USC at home. I kind of like NC State to be sneaky good here, and maybe if they keep it close, um, they can start to rattle Notre Dame a little bit down the stretch. So I'm not sure they're going to win, but I'll take NC State plus the seven. Too many All points. right, game number three. Let's go to Morgantown, sure. West Virginia, 22 in the land, taking on Oklahoma State. Um, both team, well, Oklahoma State 6-1, and one, West Virginia 5-2 and two on the season. Oklahoma State, eight-point favor. I'm going to take the Mountaineers at home plus eight. Um, 
Uh, I love the way Greer has thrown it this year for West Virginia. Mason Rudolph, I mean, you're going to get points. Um, I just don't think – I think it's just too many points. I think Oklahoma State probably wins the game. I'll take the Mountaineers, and I'll take that quarterback at home plus more than a touchdown, plus eight. So give me West Virginia. Yeah, I'm also going to take West Virginia here. Love Greer, love Sills. Um, you know, and it was it's really just more about Oklahoma State. I feel like, do we need to maybe recalibrate what their offense can do after the game against Texas? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. So I feel like West Virginia, I mean, you got them at home, and – I don't know. I, I just don't understand this point spread. I don't understand a lot of the point spreads this week. Too big. I think West Virginia is going to be able to hang with with uh, Oklahoma State. And, you know, like I said, it was after that overtime win against Texas. You know, that made me start thinking a little bit differently about Oklahoma State. And maybe Texas gave a little bit of a blueprint. I don't know about if West Virginia can hold them. But I think that they might be able to hang with them at least. So give me the Mountaineers plus the eight. So I'm taking West Virginia plus eight. Notre Dame minus seven. Penn State plus the seven. And I'm taking West Virginia plus eight. I'm taking NC State plus the seven. And I will take Penn State plus the seven. This is the Moose and Maggie Show on CBS Sports Radio. Coming to you live from the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios. O'Reilly Auto Parts, better parts, better prices every single day. And uh, looking forward to our next guest when we get him online, and that is Jim Ross, um, legendary, legendary announcer, wrestling announcer, and his new book, Slobberknocker, uh, My Life in Wrestling, um, is an interesting read. Certainly, he's got a lot of experience and and certainly called a lot of great matches, historical matches. If you're a WWE fan or a wrestling fan, let's welcome board right now. And that is the legendary Jim Ross. Hey, Jim, Mark Malusis and Maggie Gray, thanks for a couple minutes this morning. Uh, it's great to be with you guys. Thank you. And, Jim, I have to say, full disclosure, I love you, but I have not read the book yet, so this is killing me. So I'm going to ask you some questions, and forgive me for not uh, reading it yet. I don't have it. But here's a question for you. We'll start here. I mean, your job as a broadcaster is always to make it all about the wrestlers, right? And it's to prop them up and it's to do whatever you need to do to make the match as exciting as possible. But you got very deeply personal in this book and it was a lot about you. And I'm curious, was that difficult for you to, you know, open up to talk about things that are so personal and to make yourself in some ways vulnerable by sharing this with the public? I think, Maggie, that we're obligated to be honest if we're going to write our autobiography. You know, it's just not about a payday and let's sell a bunch of books and move on. Uh, I wanted to leave something behind. You know, my, my grandchildren, because of my Bell's palsy, have never seen Grandpa smile. Mm. So, uh, and there's a lot of things about my crazy career in the wrestling business that, you know, they're just not up to. So my family is going to be reading this book and learning things for the first time. It was challenging, but... At that time, when I was putting the book together, Maggie, I had my wife here. So uh, she really was my, uh, you know, my life coach in that deal. We, she, she helped me decide how much we wanted to reveal of the journey. I think my book should have been called uh, Slobberdocker, My Life and Wrestling, but uh, nonetheless, it's My Life in Wrestling. It was a whole hell of a lot more about life and getting up and setting goals and having some fun than it is about headlocks and hammerlocks. Well, it, it's interesting you mentioned that, Jim. And and I, I guess the as you walk and you take your and you look back and you go through this journey of putting your thoughts down. What do you want the reader? I mean, what do you want the reader to take out of your book first and foremost? Several things. Uh, I I want them to uh, say, "Why not me?" I want them to think big when they're young. 
I want them to prepare for their future and have a goal uh, and not quit. My dad said that uh, I wanted to quit the ninth grade football team because I was playing on the varsity. So he said, uh, uh, well, here's the deal, son. Quitting is the easiest thing in the world to get good at. Mm. You ain't quitting. That's a good point. That's That's a good line from your dad. Honestly, Jim, we're so sorry about the loss of your wife, Jan, from earlier this year. That was something uh, just our heart goes out to you and absolutely still does. Can you go through the story about how the two of you met? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We actually met on a – my wife at the time was a U.S. Air uh, flight attendant, and there were four first-class seats in this little uh, puddle jumper from – I think we were in Charleston, West Virginia, flying back to Atlanta. And I was sitting in first class of four seats next to Ric Flair – and my wife was a very attractive woman, and Ric Flair has this history of liking very attractive women, even though, uh, well, his wife was married. He might not have been, but his wife was married. <laughs> and, uh, so he started, uh, he started uh, trying to connect with Jan, and, and for whatever reason, she uh, and I had a chemistry, and we exchanged cards, and, and then it was 25 years we were together. So it was amazing. It's an amazing uh, story in there, and she was my... This business, entertain, you guys know how the entertainment business is. We're all, we wake up paranoid half the time. We yeah. wake up wondering, are we still good? Are we going to be good enough? How's our ratings? Uh, so uh, I think that she helped me so much because fat guys with Oklahoma accents, <laughs> with Bell's palsy, are, you, you wonder, what the hell is that guy doing on television? <laughs> and she kept, me, she kept me believing in me. And that was really, really important when you have some uh, personal things happen that you can see every day in the mirror. Yeah, well, and I was being self-deprecating as you are, but obviously you're a huge talent, Jim. And if people might not know Bell's palsy, it affects it, your your fa- uh, facial uh, ability to make um, emotions out of your face, right? Uh, the muscles in your face. Yeah, it's my. Uh, I've had it three times, and uh, I've had it some real strange times. Uh, different things that uh, st- trigger it, we think, but. Uh, I can't smile. And so people think I, ha- I did book signings this week in Chicago and Pittsburgh, and I, a lot of the fans put their, uh, their, their shots on, on, on social media, and I'm getting this from people that don't know me. says, damn, JR, are you mad? Why aren't you smiling? <laughs> well, I said, I wish I could, pal. I wish yeah. I could. Uh, Jim, when you set out, you mentioned, uh, you, know, uh, you know, it was a great, great message from your father early on in life in, in ninth grade football, you know, quitting is something you can get easy at or is easy thing to do. Uh, uh, when you set your goals as a broadcaster, um, it, you know, in the industry, you know, what were your goals in life early on? Early on, I became, I was the only child, not only early on, but now I'm still an only child. But I was the only child on a 160-acre farm in eastern Oklahoma, and I had to have an imagination. I learned to read when I was five. I was by myself. I was a latchkey kid before the term was, I think, uh, invented. So uh, I was a prisoner to my transistor radio and a little earplug and Harry Carey and Jack Buck and KMOX Radio in St. Louis. Even though I lived in Oklahoma, it, was a big, it boomed in. So I became a, a fan of the Cardinals because I loved radio. I love the theater of the mind, and I loved how blue the sky was on a Sunday afternoon in St. Louis because Jack Buck told me, and that really resonated with me for the rest of my life. Yeah, and you know, Jim, you got to call some Falcons games, right? I mean, you've, you've done not just the sports entertainment, but you've done straight-up sports. I mean, did you ever think about just going to that permanently? Yes, I did, uh, but I'll tell you, when you get painted with the pro wrestling brush, some insecure decision-makers 
who will tell you, even though your work is good enough to be on their air, they can't put you on their air because you're, quote, unquote, the wrestling guy. Hmm. So I, I dealt with that. I did work with the Falcons in, in the early 92, I think it was, and I did the XFL, the season of the X, the only season of the XFL was in business. And uh, so I've had some fun. Uh, done, and I've done MMA. I've done boxing on CBS Sports. I've done a lot of things that now, now today, the restrictions on being the wrestling guy have been lessened, and I'm really happy for that. Should have yeah, been a long time ago. Yeah, it should have been a long time ago. And, and, Jim, why do you think that is the case? Or why do you think it was the case predominantly years ago that you were pigeonholed in that way? I think that uh, the reputation and this, the image of pro wrestling and the smoky arenas and the you know cigar-smoking, cigar-chomping promoters and the barrel-chested wrestlers and so forth – I think it got uh, kind of maybe maybe unfairly stereotyped, but uh, it's just a it's it's like being it's like being a bully. I've been I tell people in my in my one man shows when I do the Q and A's that we're all here together. This is like a church for you guys because I'm not gonna I'm not gonna fat shame you so to speak. I love that you're a wrestling fan. Mm-hmm. You should always be proud of the things that you love, and including wrestling is not not illegal. So uh, I just think people just have that little. It's not that way today as much. No, it's McMahon not. Has done a phenomenal job and making uh, WWE go mainstream, and, and it's being accepted by the media in that regard. We're talking with Jim Ross. He's a WWE Hall of Famer, of course, but he's got a new book out. It's called Slobberknocker, My Life in Wrestling. You can buy it now. It was so funny. I was just interviewing Mick Foley uh, recently, Jim, and he's also got a book out, and I went to go look back at some of his old clips, and it's like it's shocking to watch. I mean, just the, you know, being body slammed into a you know bed of thumbtacks. It's just stuff that you would <laughs> never see now. I mean, when as that transition was sort of happening, did you feel like that was a good place for the WWE to go, or were you, are you surprised now that it's sort of become family friendly, a lot more glossy than it was back in the day, and that's led to really, I mean, if you look at the numbers, WWE's more profitable and and better off in their business than now than they have ever been. Yeah, they've uh, Vince and his family and the team's done a great job there. Uh, well, you know, Mick is uh, special. Uh, Vince didn't want me to hire Mick because Mick had tried to go to work at WWE two or three times, had tryouts and so forth, just didn't make the cut, and didn't have the look that uh, was coveted at that time. But when I was made the uh, vice president of talent, uh, I mentioned to Vince I wanted to hire Foley, and he said, well, I'm going to let you hire him because you need to understand what it's like to believe in a talent, Jr., and then them break your heart. And he said, I think this guy's going to break your heart because he's not as good as you think he is. So, luckily, Mick proved us all wrong. He proved I, I shouldn't have any apprehension because he was a, he became a star. Vince loved him, still loves him. So, uh, that was a big deal for me. And Mick, Mick became a best-selling author and a main event wrestler and a Hall of Famer. And I'm sure glad we gave him the opportunity to, to, to live his dream like I got to live mine. You know, you, you discovered Mick Foley, well, you brought him over. What about the Stone Cold and The Rock, two other wrestlers that you are credited for really building their careers and finding them? Besides that, you know, sort of mythological it factor, Jim, what else did you, did they have where you knew they'd be successful? Maggie, they had, uh, they had the unrelenting desire to be the best in the game, and they seemingly were not going to settle. And uh, the main trait I always look for in any wrestler when I signed them, you know, anybody can judge somebody and they can pass or fail the eyeball test. Obviously, Rock and Austin both uh, passed the eyeball test. But the thing about they were they came from a mainstream background athletically in foot, college football. Uh, they've been in a locker room. All the thing, oh, they checked all the things off my list. 
But the main thing, they were reliable. I knew they'd be at work on time. They're going to give me a great effort. They're going to prepare. They're not going to cheat the paying customer. So the reliability uh, factor, which is huge for me, uh, they, they check it very prominently. So they just had the, all the traits to be great. Rock told me the day I signed him, I'm going to be your top guy. He didn't say that in an egocentric way. He was very, very, very confident. And uh, recruiting him and signing him was one of them, probably as good an accomplishment, lucky accomplishment as I had in my career. Jim, uh, what what made you? And I mean, you still are. I mean, uh, as good as what you are as a as a broadcaster with wrestling. I mean, I, you know, I grew up as a wrestling fan, and uh, you know, in, in Rockland County and upstate, you know, a little bit upstate New York, and you know, watching uh, you know Gorilla Monsoon and the like, and um, a legendary broadcaster. And you know, I love when you call a match. I love when. And I missed you when you weren't there. And then when you came back, it's fantastic that you're back in the fold. You know, what, what do you think set you apart, Jim, as a wrestling broadcaster? Oh, golly. I think uh, I, didn't, I didn't go to broadcasting school. I didn't work my way through uh, too much uh, radio and things, to that, which I thought I would do. Uh, I kind of took a crazy route to get here. Uh, and the wrestling business is so closed at that time. It's like a nonviolent mafia. Uh, you had to know somebody. You had to be an athlete. You had to have a connection. They didn't want anybody in their closed business because they were trying to keep the secret that it was showbiz, which is kind of funny. But nonetheless, <laughs> I was lucky to get in. So, uh, but, but I, I just, I've always had this damn, uh, it's almost like I'm too caffeinated or something. I don't know. I, I love what I do. I love what I do, and I'm damn sure not ashamed to say I'm a fan of the genre that pays me. And I, so I, I've really uh, been blessed with this stuff. And I'll tell you again, well, Harry Carey and Jack Buck have that influence. Tell your story, Jr. Let people know who's wrestling and why and, and, and give them something. I think I sound a little different. But uh, I think main, the main thing is just the passion uh, for, the, for, the, for the genre. Now, going into it, everything's, you know, we know, it, you know there's a predetermined outcome, Jim. Did, did you know the outcomes going into matches? Well, I knew generally. I, I can tell you that the biggest question I get or the most frequently asked is, were you aware that The Undertaker is going to throw Mick Foley off the hell in a cell in 1998, believe it or not? Yeah. They asked that question. Uh, and no, absolutely not. I always felt that, hey, I knew what our product was. I knew it was a showbiz presentation. I get it. But I, my mantra was from my bosses early on was broadcast it, JR, like it is real. And, and let people suspend their disbelief. That's your skill set. That's what you need to learn to do. So that's what I really worked, have worked hard on doing. But, you know, guys like Monsoon, who was a great mentor to me when I went to WWE in 93, he was like my, my giant uncle. Because a lot of guys at WWE, I was not their favorite guy because I came from the enemy. I came from WCW as their lead, lead broadcaster when Vince hired me. And uh, Monsoon was my guy that kind of took me under his wing and let me be accepted by the group. So I love him. We're talking with Jim Ross. His new book is called Slobberknocker, My Life in Wrestling. You can buy it now. Of course, he's got the Ross Report podcast as well. We only have about a minute left or a little bit after, Jim, but I just saw the Ric Flair documentary. I was able to go to a screening of it earlier this week, and I think your quote just pulls the whole movie together, quite frankly, when you said, I'm not sure something along the lines of, I'm not sure how much attention Rick got as a kid, and I think that that's, and, and as soon as you said it, it was like the whole movie just like all of a sudden made just so much more sense on another level. Um, what do you think of the documentary if you've seen it? And what do you want people to know about your relationship with Flair? Well, it's awesome. You know, I, Rick was my guy was with me when I met my wife. And, uh, 
you know, I've called a lot of his biggest matches for many, many decades, and uh, he's the best that ever wrestled. He's the best performer, uh, hero, villain, uh, tenure, brawler, wrestler, promo guy, uh, just uh, the best I ever saw. And this, this documentary is going to be very captivating. You certainly do not have to be a wrestling fan <laughs> to enjoy Roy Karp's 30 for 30. He's on my podcast this week. His interview about the two years it took to make this documentary is phenomenal. So I would encourage folks to listen to my podcast. It's free, by the way, so uh, that's the price is right anyway. <laughs> it's, a phenomenal, it's a phenomenal production, no doubt. Jim, growing up on that, growing up in in uh, that 160 acre farm, do you ever think about do you ever think about working in Oklahoma? Growing up as a kid, or you always had higher, bigger things in your mind? I was dreaming. My my grandmother told me, I tell her little things I wanted to do. I had you know I'm like any kid. I want to be a fireman. I want to be a cowboy. I want to be whatever. And she said, Well, somebody's going to do it. She told me that day after day. Well, somebody's going to do it. So basically, go for it. As my granny was telling me, and she wasn't Doctor Phil or. You know, some motivational speaker. She was a granny. She had logic. Go for it. And don't have any regrets. So I, I've done that, and I didn't really have a great plan. You don't plan to get in the wrestling business, let me tell you. <laughs> Jim Instead Ross. of why you. Why not you? Yeah, I love exactly that. Right. It's great. Slobberknocker, my life in wrestling. Hey, Jim, we appreciate a couple minutes this morning, and best of luck with the book and continued success. Thanks, guys, very much. It's an honor to be on with you and Boomer Sooner. You got it. There you go. Exactly right. We got no Baker Mayfield questions. No, we did not. We ran out of time. Three down, an hour left to play with. Jack McCallum will join us next. Moose and Maggie with you, CBS Sports Radio. This is the Moose and Maggie Show on CBS Sports Radio. Ah, yes, fourth and final hour here on this Saturday morning as we come to you live from the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios. O'Reilly Auto Parts, better parts, better prices every single day. We kicked off the final hour in style. Jack McCallum joins us now. Uh, New book, Golden Days, West Lakers, Steph's Warriors, and the California Dreamers who reinvented basketball. And Jack, Mark Malusis, and Maggie Gray, thanks for a couple minutes this morning. How you doing, guys? Do well, Jack. How are you? I'm doing fine. Great, Jack. You know, let's start here. There's a lot of places I want to start with you because it's a phenomenal book. Jerry West kind of is the thread that sort of goes throughout it. But because of the news from last night of Draymond Green getting ejected from the game, I feel like maybe that's a good place to start because you write a lot about Draymond and this current Warriors team. And, you know, Draymond's kind of unique, right? Because he's so important to what the Warriors do on the court. Yet he has, you know a bit for as enlightened as he is on some other topics on the court, he can be a bit of a knucklehead. And I know that you had an experience sort of expecting one thing when you went into the book about Draymond and finding another. Can you talk about that? Well, I, I went out and, and thought when I started, I didn't really know uh, Draymond. And I thought that everyone would say kind of secretly, uh, you know, that his knucklehead factor is simply too high. And if they had a chance to, uh, you know, get a good deal for him. But I found out, you know, it was quite the opposite, that the Warriors even themselves have this, they would never voice this outward, that they have this little opinion that they're kind of soft. You know, Steph, usually your alpha players will be, have some sort of physical component to them, even if it's more psychological, you know, a kind of arrogance or something. But that's not true. You know, Steph is a uh, finesse player. Kevin Durant is a, is a finesse player. Clay Thompson, in his own way, he's a tough defender, but he's a finesse player. So they really need that from uh, Draymond. And what Steve Kerr told me was he has a very tough role. We asked him 
to go up to a line, you know, but not step over it. And sometimes he steps over it. And the battle to keep Draymond uh, on the correct side of the line, or at least on the line, I don't think is over. I mean, the ejection last night, I think that, you know, he is a man who truly experiences these frustrations. And one of the reasons they got David West was, uh, you know, to kind of be uh, Draymond's caretaker is too strong a word, but kind of be the guy that watches over Draymond, gets him into, uh, keeps him in the line. I asked David West how he did it. He said, well, a lot of times I do it with uh, physicality. I have to push him. Draymond, get back to reality. And I said, boy, that sounds dangerous <laughs> if, <laughs> if somebody else does it. But David says I do it in a loving way. So David's going to be called upon to do it uh, this year, too, obviously. Yeah, certainly uh, for a Warrior team that's, uh, you know, uber talented and looking to make it, uh, you know, two in a row in, in three of the last four. And, you know, for their brand of basketball and the brand of basketball that's being played in today's day and age, uh, Jack, and, and you've been around the game for a long time. I mean, the amount of threes that are being shot, uh, you know, people have talked about the lack of physical play, the way that, you know, you can defend in today's day and age. What what do you think about, and certainly uh, the Warriors have set a tone and a tempo of how you're going to play the game in 2017, even before that. What do you think about the brand of basketball right now? Oh, I think it's fantastic. I mean, I, I think there's, you know, a, a lot of uh, writers my age and certainly a lot of players that came out of that era. I was talking about this to uh, Maggie the other day on SI Now. You know, the idea that, oh, we could have stopped Curry, we could have stopped Durant, we did it this way, it was much tougher. That's something that Jerry West has always stayed away from, which is why he has stayed relevant. And somebody like me watching the game now, it's actually strangely, and your younger uh, listeners probably wouldn't understand this, the game actually now more resembles what it used to be when I started covering. It was a transition game. I mean, there were the Showtime Lakers, but the Celtics, who were looked upon at this plotting team, you go back, they ran the ball up and down the court also. It was a transition game. When it stopped being a transition game was in the late 90s. I think it was a 98-99 season. One team averaged over 100 points, the Sacramento Kings. So the game had kind of slowed down a little bit, and it looks more to me, not the three-pointers, you're right about that, not the, num- the volume of three-pointer shot, but the pace of the game and people getting up and down the floor, that's more like the game was played in the 60s and 70s and 80s. The Warriors just happened to do it. Uh, better than most teams, although a lot of teams are, you know, are are good to playing that way also right now. Yeah, I wonder if it's going to be, you know, just continue to be cyclical where at some point we're going to see another, you know, Hakeem Olajuwon or something and like the big post-up guy is going to come back or what have you. We're talking with Jack McCallum. He's got a new book. It's called Golden Days, West Lakers, Steph's Warriors, and the California Dreamers who reinvented basketball. You can buy it now. And, you know, you're talking about Jerry West, Jack, and how, unlike some other older players, you know, stays pretty humble and has evolved with the game, obviously, because he's so close to it, working with the Warriors. Now he's working with the Clippers, having built so many basketball teams. But you write in the book that the modern-day Warriors are, in many ways, the perfect team and Curry the perfect player to drive West nuts. And then you go on to say that uh, in no universe would Jerry West choose Steph Curry over Kevin Durant. 
And I'm curious, why is Durant over Curry a no-brainer for Jerry West? Well, despite what I said about um, Jerry staying, uh, for want of a better phrase, au courant, who's staying up with the game, appreciating the game now, when, when Jerry looks at Durant, he sees somebody he recognizes. He, he, you know, Durant is an evolutionary player. I mean, Durant takes all those things that you wanted out of a basketball player. He can shoot, he can pass, he can defend, he can rebound, he knows the floor. He's a smart player, plays in the clutch. You've now sort of taken that kind of guy. Let's say Jerry was like that. They don't play the same position. But now you got that in a seven-foot frame. I mean, Durant is really an evolutionary player. Steph, because of the distance that he shoots from the basket, the way that he sometimes throws the ball away too carelessly, this kind of devil-may-care attitude, he just kind of looks different to Jerry. Uh, And he can't, you know, he appreciates the way he shoots, but his sometimes careless turnovers, which Curry recognizes himself, is just something that he can't, identify with but it's more his positive feelings about Durant it's not like he feels negatively about Curry it's just that he feels so strongly about Durant's uh most of all Durant's kind of unselfishness you know they both had to bury part of their games when they got together and certainly Durant who was a you know 30 points per game scorer at Oklahoma City uh certainly he had to change a lot of his game to play with Steph and I think Jerry appreciates those things about Durant's game. You know, Jerry appreciates it, Jack. I'm talking, when we look back, do you think Durant uh, 20 years from now uh, will get the amount of love that he that he ultimately deserves because of the, you know, being overshadowed by LeBron, the decision to leave Oklahoma City for Golden State? Um, do you think Durant will get the love that he deserves? I think the second paragraph in 20 years from now, which I hope I'm still alive to be writing it, (laughs) I think the second paragraph of Durant's uh, resume, if you will, will probably be that he won his first championship when he aligned himself and moved teams. Unfortunately, I think that will be the second paragraph. The first paragraph, I think, will be his greatness, that you talk about someone who was one of the great scorers uh, in NBA history, one of the great shooters, a terrific all-around player. And I hope the third paragraph will be everyone remembering how many great players did not win a championship. But to a certain extent, you know, that first paragraph about Kevin is going to still be written this season because one of the things I said in the book, you know, it's 300 pages certainly of praising the Warriors, they still have to win two in a row. <laughs> you know, they still they still face a pretty formidable task. Obviously, they're starting out this season by kind of running in place a little bit, the San Antonio Spurs template, which I totally understand. That Western Conference is tough, and LeBron James is still lurking around. And in many ways, as much as we focused on the Warriors last season, this season is just as important. Okay, you did it last year? Uh, fine. A really, really good team and a team that wants to be a dynasty is going to have to do it at least two times in a row. So the Warriors' task ahead, I think, is a pretty uh, formidable one. 
We're talking with Jack McCallum. Of course, he's a Hall of Fame writer. His new book, though, Golden Days, West Lakers, Steph Warriors, and the California Dreamers who reinvented basketball. Jack, I love how you put this where Duran is the evolutionary player. Steph's the revolutionary player. I think that's just so perfect. And, you know, you and I talked about this, but let's do it again because, you know, the idea that of whose team is it or who's the most valuable warrior you know this is something that i think nba fans and sports fans like to debate but i think it's something that's also very important to the players themselves and you know at some point dynasties do come to an end i mean whose team is it first of all and secondly if they don't figure out whose team it is how could how difficult or how destructive could that potentially be for the warriors well i i came from when i was covering the league uh I always did think it was easy to identify, you know, whose team it was, that it was Larry's team. That even when the Showtime Lakers had Kareem and James Worthy, it was clearly Magic's team. The great balanced Pistons team that won two, it was Isaiah's team. Uh, Obviously, it was uh, Michael's team. LeBron goes to Miami. It's LeBron's team, as as great as Dwayne Wade was back then. When the Mavericks won, it was Dirk Nowitzki's team. This team is hard to figure, you know, even being around them. Um, it certainly started out as, as Steph's team. I mean, you know, they won a championship without Kevin Durant. And last year during the finals, I think we, demonst- you know, it was demonstrated the terrific balance that this team has. I mean, Durant was clearly the MVP, but he also clearly would not have gotten to that point without Steph. So the clearest comparison I can have to them, even though they're totally different kind of players and personalities is Kobe and Shaq at the beginning of the century, you know, in in the year 2000, when they began their three-peat, I always thought it was clearly Shaq's team. And then it kind of Kobe got, you know, such a, became such a great player and kind of grew into the role. It kind of more became Kobe's team or he wanted it to be Kobe's team. So by the time they were done, you know, you didn't know who the hell's team it was. (laughs) And that was part of their problem. And as I said, these two guys are different personalities. But I think at some point that's going to have to be something that's uh, decided. They went through it a little bit last year, by the way. I mean, Curry had thought in the beginning, if you recall the Christmas Day game, you know, they completely blew that in Cleveland. And at that point, Curry sort of woke up and said, whoa, I've been deferring a little bit too much here. I'm going to have to get uh, back. I'm going to have to get my game back. I can't change it that much. And that's a constant thing that they're going to have to uh, tamper with. Uh, Fortunately for them, their personalities are such. They're unselfish kids. They're smart uh, players. They're really good personality type of guys. So I think they'll figure it out. But it will be, to my eyes, a kind of different paradigm if it's two players' teams instead of one player's team. You know, Jack, I want to ask you a, a question about West. Um, you know, legendary player. I mean, for the young fans out there, they, they don't. I mean, legendary player and also a legendary executive. And we've seen legendary players become executives that aren't legendary executives, <laughs> right? So, what do you what, what do you think set West apart here as a talent evaluator and as an executive to where he could transition from the the great player on the court? to being a great executive and evaluator? Well, I think it was uh, a little bit of what I uh, said before, that, that he has this ability to, I mean, he, was, he last he played, uh, retired as a player in 74, 
and he was a coach for three seasons, basically became an executive after that. But for whatever reason, so that's like 40 years, over 40 years when he's been, quote, management instead of a player. But for whatever strange reason, he always registers as a player. When he, that doesn't mean he can't. I'm sure players have been pissed off at him and in negotiating contracts, and agents maybe have. But West always seems to have this touch with players that they want to play for him, and that when he they come to his team, they sort of he, he registers to them as a player, and he did that with these Warriors. I mean, some of the most interesting conversations were some of the lesser Warriors. I don't mean the lesser guys, but lesser in the rotation. Sean Livingston, David West, who told me when West talks to them, it's almost like they're talking to a contemporary. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not going to dwell on what it was like in the 70s. <laughs> so it seemed that when he was in management, he was able to do that. He was signed guys, and they came to him, and, and he was able to kind of communicate with them in a way that management usually doesn't do, and that's been part of his success yeah no back in my day yeah. this is how we did it jack thanks for doing this jack, really appreciate it the book. new book is called golden days west lakers steph warriors and the california dreamers who reinvented basketball thank you jack have a great weekend and good luck with the book thanks thanks for having me See you. you got it Bye. um we're gonna do some nfl picks straight ahead. we gotta right? do picks we gotta do picks we have a lot to do we got tweets of the week we got yeah. andrew brandt andrew brandt a lot of things going on in the nfl as we discussed earlier on in the show we'll get to all that and more next moose and maggie with you cbs sports radio this is the moose and maggie show on cbs sports radio ah yes rolling right along here on this saturday morning we're going to chat with uh, Andrew Brand, MMQB, coming up uh, about 15 minutes away. Uh, we've got some uh, tweets of the week as well, but let's get to it. Let's get to some NFL picks. All right, let's get to it. Um, Records. Where were we last week? Uh, probably not good. <laughs> uh, last week, Maggie went 1-1-1, one, 7-13-1 one, one, nice. overall in the NFL. Moose, you were 2-1, and 10-11. and not, 11. not bad. Not bad. Not bad. Got it was seven thirteen and one, and I think it was that Dolphins. No, what was Dolphins. it? It yeah, was the Dolphins three. game. Yeah. yeah, right. That was man. I pulled that one out for the push. Okay, where are we starting here? Let me kick us off, shall I? Yeah, I'm gonna go with the Chargers, first. and I'm gonna take Woo. the points plus seven on the road against New England. Feel like Chargers uh, a little bit of mojo. Patriots two and two at home. Obviously, the defense has been giving up a lot of yardage, and you have the injury to Dante Hightower. So I think the Chargers are going to be able to move on the Patriots. I don't think they'll win, but give me sin. <laughs> Almost said San Diego. Give me LA. Well, there you go. Plus the seven. All right, we're going to take the Cowboys. I'll lay the deuce on the road um, in Washington. Did you just say lay the deuce? Yes, I did. <laughs> Against the Redskins. <laughs> Thanks Good. for that. I'm glad everyone picked up on that. Uh, lay the two on the road in Washington. <laughs> Enjoy your breakfast, Against the everybody. Redskins. Um, I think Dallas is just better right now. Washington, uh, offensively, we know there's issues with Cousins and uh, ownership down there and the GM and um, and the like. I, I don't think they have the playmakers. Certainly, they miss Garcon. They miss P, uh, Deshaun Jackson. Uh, Terrell Pryor has not worked. Um, and also, uh, Josh Doxson has not developed. So, give me the Cowboys coming off a... A daylight victory last week in which they took the 49ers behind the woodshed. I think they get themselves to four and three. Give me the Cowboys minus two. 
Okay, my next one, I'm going to go Panthers at Buccaneers. Panthers, uh, Buccaneers two-point favorite. Give me the Panthers plus the two. Okay. Um, Man, up and down season for them, but let's not forget the Panthers are still four and three. And, you know, they are, uh, you know, they're three and one away from home. And I just, I know this is weird, but like, you know, Cam had like this horrible moment again at the press conference where he totally rolled embarrassed his himself, eyes, rolled his eyes and walked, and walked away, out. Yeah. But weirdly, after he has, oh my gosh, after he has these embarrassing things he usually comes back with a good game he does. <laughs> so I, I know that's not scientific by any stretch I could throw a lot of numbers out there for you but I'm not going to I'm just gonna say Panthers plus two I'm gonna take the Saints minus the nine I know it's a big spread in today's day and age of the NFL I mean parity reigns supreme I get it um and a lot of these big uh, point spread numbers have not been covered all season I'm gonna go against that trend this week a little bit uh give me New Orleans at home against the Chicago Bears uh Great road win last week. I know no Aaron Rodgers, but to still win in Lambeau, uh, tough sledding. Defense has played a lot better uh, as of late. And I think Breeze and the Saints are, are going to make it a margin game. Michael Thomas back at practice this week. A uh, little bit of a knee issue, uh, but he should be good to go Sunday and down at the Mercedes-Benz Superdome. So give me the Saints minus nine. That's pick two. Okay, final pick for me. I'm going to go with the Seahawks, and I'm going to lay the six and a half. Um, I think Seahawks started, I mean, getting back their mojo a little bit, playing against the Giants, uh, starting to feel themselves undefeated at home. Texans, obviously, this is coming off a tough week for them with the comments that Bob McNair made. DeAndre Hopkins not at practice. I think the guys, you know, not that I don't think they can focus for their game, but I just think they're running into a tough opponent probably at the worst time. Um, I think that Seattle defense is going to be difficult for Deshaun Watson for as good as he's been. I don't know if he's faced a defense like this, and I still believe the Seahawks are a top defense. So give me the Seahawks. That crowd is obviously going to be really into it, which can be also difficult for rookie quarterbacks. So I'll take the Seahawks, and I'll lay the six and a half. All right, pick number three for me. I'm going to go another spread. Give me the Bengals laying the ten and a half at home against the Indianapolis Colts. I'll tell you, Jacoby Brissett can play. Um, he's just not surrounded by all that much in Indianapolis, and he's not as good as Andrew Luck, so he can't make up for the other deficiencies on that team. Cincinnati two and four, they're home. They're gonna, they're reportedly gonna get John Ross uh, back in the lineup. Uh, the talented rookie out of Washington, their first round pick, uh, AJ Green running it. I know a little frustration from Dixon not getting enough carries. I think he'll get some carries. Uh, this Sunday against the Indianapolis Colts. So give me Cincinnati laying 10 and a half. That's pick three. Okay, so recapping, I'm taking the L.A. Chargers plus the seven in Foxborough. I'm taking Carolina plus the two against a division rival in the Tampa Bay Bucks, And I will take Seattle at home minus six and a half against the Houston Texans. Bengals minus 10 and a half. I said Mixon, Joe Mixon getting the carries yeah. on Sunday against the Indianapolis Colts. Bengals minus 10 and a half. Saints minus nine. And I'm going to go the Cowboys uh, minus the two uh, down in Washington. This is the Moose and Maggie show on CBS Sports Radio. All right, before we get to Andrew, before uh, when it's time to replace your battery, trust the professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts help you choose the superstar battery that's an exact fit for your vehicle. O'Reilly Auto Parts, better parts, better prices every single day. Without further ado, let's hit the guest line. Andrew Brent, MMQB, joins us now. Good morning, Andrew. How are you? 
Good morning, guys. How are you? Uh, hanging in there, Andrew, and and certainly um, better I than mean, Bob McNair. Bob McNair. I mean, <laughs> and everything that's transpiring right now down in Houston. I mean, you you want to talk about adding gasoline to the fire? I mean, when this story comes out, uh, the NFL owners, and then you throw in the Snyder comments as well. They seem to can't get out of their own way. Yeah, and I sort of remark that the. Uh, the harmony coming out of those meetings, you knew it couldn't last. Just like the harmony with the kneeling and uh, locking arms with owners in week three, you knew it couldn't last because ultimately these are two sides on adverse parts of the business relationship. And the part that obviously inflamed everything was the, the comment, the words used, inmates at prison. But I guess I sort of look at it the bigger picture. The real issue is, McNair, Snyder, Jones, others, let's just, they're sort of saying to each other, let's not get carried away with this. Let's listen to the players. Let's be respectful of their wishes, of their social issues. But they're not partners. They're not running this business. We are. And I always look at it in terms of what's the real issue here. The issue going into those meetings for the owners was we're going to be respectful and listen but we have to make sure this is not affecting our bottom line, and it was and maybe is, and that's where the comments come from. The word choice is obviously going to set a, set a fire, the Twitter sphere and everything else, but the bigger picture is, hey, players, you're not partners with us. We're listening, but you're not our business partner. Andrew Brandt joining us. You know, I just don't know what that accomplishes, though. You know, I mean, I, I think that the owners, I think that the players – probably want to be seen as partners, no? I mean, wouldn't that be better off as to have a more symbiotic relationship or at least the appearance of one? Because, Andrew, I think this comment from McNair did a lot of damage. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, listen, ESPN uncovered this. We came out of those meetings. We saw Jed York say this is the best meeting he's ever had. We saw players seeming very encouraged, although Russell Akung's statements kind of took the luster off that last week. But now we're sort of drilling down. And they go inside these meetings, which are, of course, meant to be, you know, quiet, private, never getting out. And it got out. Uh, listen, I've been involved a lot of player owner, a lot of owner meetings in my time with the Packers. There are things said that they don't want to get out. Obviously, not to any kind of racist extent or not kind of demeaning extent like that. But you have to understand these are relentless <clears throat> negotiators they gain advantage with networks with sponsors with ticket holders and with players anyone who's looked at the cba knows that so what surprises people about the fact that they want to put them in their place business-wise and obviously the word choice is the inflamed part of it what does what do, what does ownership do now andrew well, as far as I know, these meetings are still on, uh, that they said they'll continue two weeks. Two weeks is, is Tuesday, thanks uh, Halloween. That's when we're going to allegedly have some more meetings that potentially include Kaepernick. I haven't heard anything different on that other than the fact that the players invited him. There's some reasonable uh, expectation that he's going to be there. So that is good timing because that can allay some of the emotions if they do sit down maybe have some apologies get through all that i think what you're sort of indicating though are we going to have any kind of reaction tomorrow 
at any stadium, perhaps most notably the the Seattle-Houston game, we'll have to see. Um, You know, in some ways the timing is okay because it was Friday. Imagine if that got out Sunday morning. Yeah, that would be. Um, So we'll see what happens. You hear about DeAndre Hopkins, you know, 48 hours tends to soothe a lot of emotion. We're talking with Andrew Brandt. One last thought on this, Andrew, or at least my last thought yeah. on it, is this. I mean, this is so embarrassing, I think, for Bob McNair and for the Texans almost more than anything. You know, do, does having these types of PR gaffes, does that give any leverage to the players? Well, I think leverage in the court of public opinion. I think leverage in the meetings that are going to keep occurring about, you know, sponsoring criminal justice reform, about putting their names on things like they admirably did with Doug Baldwin uh, about sitting down face-to-face. But I don't think leverage on the business front. I mean, I think the owners expressed the same things the players did. The owners expressed we're having some problems, Jerry Jones, saying it's definitely affecting our business. You know, after all this, Moose and Maggie, you've got to understand this. Remember, there were, there were dozens, if not hundreds, of players with some form of protest during the anthem, and now we're down to a handful. So whatever has happened was was dissipating, and I don't know if that's going to back up tomorrow where you're going to have more. But you know the NFL. Every quote-unquote crisis uh, we seem to get by. Andrew, I'm curious with Goodell and the delay in his contract. Um do you think it's a foregone conclusion? You know, I know I saw the comments by Jerry Jones uh, this week saying it's the you know most one-sided contract ever. Uh, you know, it was reports in September the deal was going to get done. It has been delayed. Uh, do you think it's a foregone conclusion that a deal gets done with Goodell remaining as NFL commissioner? I do, Moose. I, you know, again, they've got the luxury of time. It doesn't expire till 2019, but. Jones' comments in that article are really, uh, I thought, very telling that, you know, as I said, these guys negotiate hard with the players. Now they're negotiating with the commissioner. Uh, and maybe the commissioner has an agent or a lawyer, you know, doing this. I think what we're talking about is incentive-based compensation. Instead of just throwing them, pick a number, $30, $35 million, make it a lower number with triggers. And we can figure out what those triggers are. What's the TV deal look like? What's this next CBA going to look like? Those are the two major ones right? and other triggers. So, you know, if I'm looking at it from a business point of view, I understand Jones. You know, you're going to set him up for life with whatever he makes, $15, $20 million, but give him the triggers instead of the guaranteed money. Yeah, they wanted the incentives in there. Yeah. And that's why, yeah, Jones said the most one-sided contract in history. We're talking with Andrew Brett, MMQB giving us his thoughts on everything NFL business-related. And I'm sure you saw this of the Fox CEO, Andrew, who blamed the ratings drop on the oversaturation of games. And that's sort of what Mark Cuban had kind of said. You know, the sort of fat hogs get slaughtered, I believe, was the term he used. I mean, we're talking a lot about ratings being down. In some cases, they're up. And that's Monday Night Football, reportedly, they're up. Other games, they're down. When you see James Murdoch say it's the oversaturation I mean, how much do you think the league believes that to be the case, the leagues and the players, and would they ever do anything to rectify it? Um, because we're talking about whether people are watching because the kneeling or the not kneeling. I mean, how much do you think is just the fact that we have football almost every day? 
Yeah, I mean, I thought those were interesting comments, and I think I even saw a report about uh, less Thursday night. You know, I think the whole less less is more concept is part of the reason the NFL is so popular, because it is only 16 games. Um, and I also think they can do more with the less is more concept, especially Thursday night. Uh, it doesn't have to be every Thursday night. Maybe it's eight Thursday nights instead of 16. In terms of other ways, I don't think Monday night or Sunday night is going anywhere. Um, I do think this sort of early morning uh, London games, you know, it doesn't take a genius to figure out the networks aren't going to get good ratings for that. People have other things, and it's 6.30 in the morning out west. So those are the kind of things they'll probably look at in the next deal. I continue to say this, Maggie. I don't really understand rating stories because in 2020, are are CBS and Fox really going to say, yeah, you know, I don't think we're going to get into the NFL anymore. (laughs) Yeah, ratings are down. Yeah, Yeah, 2%. Right, right. And, and of course, as I always say, Google, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, they're all going to be there at the the trough as well. And people also don't realize, I mean, even when the ratings are down, they're so much higher than everyone else's ratings. Like, literally every sport would kill to have the ratings even the way they've declined that the NFL has. Yeah, I don't – I haven't – seen the world series rankings but ratings but i wonder if that's even like a, a normal sunday is is probably what the world series gets no which is which is very very fair um you know when, when you look at the uh, we've talked about you know the quality of play the state of play here um andrew if i asked you you know big picture um the protest put put that aside what's the biggest concern you think for nfl owners and for management about their game, about this league moving forward? And I, I, my answer to that gets back to the ratings question in a different way. I don't think it's concussions. I don't think it's protests. I think the biggest issue is, for lack of a better word, millennials and watching habits. And every league, every league is trying to figure out how to skew younger, how to skew younger. And if they skew younger, you've got to deal with attention spans and options. And I think it's great what the NFL is doing now with side-by-side ads and with shorter ads, even though I think the the quarter breaks are longer. Um, that's the way to go. I, I Listen, we'd, we've gone from like 3.08 to three hours. I think we got to get to like two and a half hours at some point because – it's just too much other stuff to do, and that's the biggest issue to me, how to engage the younger audience, because it's everything skewing older with baseball, football, uh, hockey, basketball seems to be tapping in, but football is working on it. they got to get there. Yeah, it's interesting, the commitment, the Sunday commitment. We all love NFL Sundays, right? We all love football. I mean, you know, we, we talk about it 24-7 all year long, right? But... If you throw in this Sunday, if you're watching a little London action at 9.30 yeah. in the morning, if, you're, if I'm going East Coast time, I'm tuned in at 9.30 in the morning, and I'm going to midnight. I mean, that, that, is, I mean, that is a long day of football watching, Andrew. Yeah, and I've got teenage kids, and they're huge fans. But, they, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll give it one game. <laughs> they'll give it three hours if, if, you know, if pressed. But they're not going to give it nine hours. And they're not going to go do all the shoulder programming. Um, and I think that's what the most you can expect. And sort of how do you squeeze in more time with the younger generation? 
and little you know little tricks like the side by side screens sure. and that there's going to be more of that most yeah i feel like the nfl should have followed the nba in their social media we're just like yeah, let people point. post stuff and <laughs> you know they'll share it around and pass your product andrew brand from the mmqb Andrew, thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week. Oh, it was a pleasure, guys. Thanks. You got it. Uh, let's get to some tweets of the week. Okay. All right. How about Bruce Arians? Says he has no plans to retire after the season. Report came out uh, that he was, and here he is. Hearing reports on retiring news to me, nothing could be further from the truth. And 100% focused on getting back on track at SF San Francisco. Hashtag bird gang. Well, this came also on the heels of Bruce Arians when they said, uh, why wouldn't you sign Kaepernick after Palmer went down? He said, well, I never carry three quarterbacks. And people went back to the depth charts. And it turns out he mostly always carries three quarterbacks. So it was a little piling on Bruce Arians. Uh, LeBron wishes Lonzo Ball a happy birthday. Uh, Tweeting out, happy G-Day young king. Uh, at uh, Zoe 2 underscore what? Exclamation point. Live it up on your day. Hashtag live, laugh, love. Hashtag strive for greatness. Did you see afterwards? I mean, Lonzo said, come on. It it meant a lot because LeBron was his favorite player growing up. Ooh. That's the classic backhanded yeah, compliment. You it's like old. When, when I almost told uh, Dr. J, it's like, hey, you won the title the year I was born. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I stopped myself because it's like, oh, I mean, he'd probably hate that. I mean, what are you doing? Uh, reaction to Kiko Alonso's hit on Joe Flacco, Torrey Smith. Uh, dirty ass hit. Uh, that is a flag 10 out of 10 times, even though you could argue he had a split second too late. He slid a split te- second too late. He still hit him in the head. I mean, what do you want to do? We talked about it earlier. Yeah, flag him, but don't eject him, which is not what Torrey Smith is saying, right? Right. No, that's true. I don't think it's dirty, And I don't think it's a dirty hit. That's the other issue I have. I don't think it's a dirty hit. There's nothing Alonzo could do. I don't think so. I mean, Flacco was going for the first down. Is it going to be Neo in midair? I mean, it's not happening. Dodging the the bullets, yeah, like going backwards, yes. like he's doing the, the, the reference. <laughs> Matrix, you got the reference. Reaction to Game Three of the World Series, JJ Watt. Yes, sir. Stroh's hashtag earn history. Um, and Lance McCullers Jr. What a team performance! Holy wow! MMP was crazy. Minimay Park, let's go. Hashtag H-Town, eh, hashtag two more. And, of course, we get game four tonight. Tonight. Morton Mary Wood. Tweet to the week. 8 o'clock Eastern time on Fox. 8 o'clock, correct. Yeah. That is right. Tonight, Okay, yes. call it most. Who wins tonight? Um, I think the, the Dodgers answer. I think the Dodgers answer. Tonight. I do, too. Yeah. I think they're going to even it up. I think this one's going seven. I'm hoping. So, hopefully, we're more of the college pick variety than the NFL <laughs> pick with our MLB pick. Is we can't yeah. pick the NFL. Maggie, no, good it's show. clear we right. can't pick the NFL. Dennis Anthony, great job across the way. Fantastic as always. Maggie, enjoy your weekend. Thanks, Moose. Till next too. Saturday. Moose we'll and Maggie, CBS Sports Radio. Thanks for checking us out each and every Saturday morning on CBS Sports Radio and checking out our podcast too, Maggie. Yeah, and be sure to download and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. It's the Moose and Maggie Show, CBS Sports Radio.